Hey everybody, this month's episode of the Rado Talks Who Podcast is brought to you by Elf Creek Games. And hello everybody, how are you doing? We've got a bunch of new questions that have been answered by me and Jen. As always, we'll start out with the game-related stuff and then move on into personal stuff. And it's interesting, this episode's going to be a little bit lighter than normal. I think the whole thing's going to be just over two hours, uh, which is okay, because the last few episodes were close to four hours long, but... Folks, if you want longer episodes, I need you to send questions to questions at rotto.com, the email address, so that we can pick them up in the next episode. I'm nothing without you people. And so I look forward to hearing what you have for me in the future. But for now, for the present, for today, we've got some questions. We've got some answers. Let's go. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Okay, everybody, let's get going. First of all, we've got a question from Andres who says, In the last episode, you told us how much you disliked the attack modifier mechanism in Marvel Champions, wherein you reveal the next card and potentially add 1 to 3 damage to attack. Why is this so much worse than Gloomhaven's attack modifier deck for monsters? Don't they do the same thing? You know, basically replace dice rolls with cards, but just a little bit different. Um, I'd actually say they're a lot different, actually. I mean, you're right. They are the same core idea. But to me, there is a big, big difference uh, between them because the Gloomhaven modifier deck is much more predictable and nowhere near as powerful and swingy. It's generally speaking, there's a lot of zeros, some ones and some twos, and uh, you know the critical hits and the critical misses, which honestly, we just take out. Uh, we take them out for the human players and for the AIs because those are so insanely swingy as to be, just be not game breaking. That's not the case at all. But you know, you know, can so undo everything that we find them frustrating. Uh, and I've always appreciated that Gloomhaven says, "Hey, if you don't like these particular things, if you want to be, if you want a more predictable experience." Take the you know the two X's and the uh, you know perfect hits and the per the critical hits and the critical misses. Take those cards out, and we do. But um, Marvel Champions doesn't have anything like that. Marvel Champions, you're right. As a general rule, they'll add just you know anywhere from zero to a few points of extra damage that they'll do. And you know if that was all they do, maybe that'd be okay. Although in Marvel Champions, the Swing between you know plus zero and plus three is huge. Never mind the fact that Marvel Champions doesn't have the other side of Gloomhaven, which is occasionally oh the enemy will do less damage than normal, so that you get those positive yeah oh my gosh I can't believe we dodged it. Um, in I mean in Marvel Champions you can get those because hey sometimes they just don't affect anything, and that's the equivalent of a oh nothing bad happened. Whereas opposed in Gloomhaven yeah. We drew the card and something good happened. And the thing is, as I said right up front, 
Gloomhaven is superior to my taste and Jen's taste because it's more predictable. It's a fixed deck. And as we go through the deck, until the deck resets, we can um, more and more accurately predict what is likely to happen. Oh, we haven't seen the uh, plus twos yet, or we haven't seen the negatives. There's a good chance we're going to dodge a bullet here and the enemy's going to do less damage than normal. Okay, if that's the case, let's um, take that into our thinking. With Marvel Champions, you can't predict at all what is going to happen. And it's nothing, but at best it's going to be, oh, good, nothing bad happened, or oh, bad things happened. There's never a, oh, a good thing happened. And then, on top of that, Marvel Champions does more than just, uh, you know, modifies the damage that bad guys do. There are lots of sometimes hugely game-changing effects, you know, like just wiping out your allies or, um, you know, forcing you, uh, you know, back into your, uh, you know, alter ego or you know, I mean, any number of things that are cool and they are exciting and I don't mind them. I mean, I appreciate that they create a really raucous and unpredictable situation with all kinds of stuff that you have to respond to. But at the end of the day, I would still prefer the more fixed, um, you know, variability of Gloomhaven. Now, Gloomhaven has those kinds of big surprises too, but that's because in Gloomhaven, the uh, the actual modifier deck is separated from the enemy deck. Whereas in Marvel Champions, they're fused into one thing. And honestly, again, I prefer the Gloomhaven approach where, okay, um, I'm, I, you know, I'm keeping track of what's likely to hit us in the modifier deck. We know what these enemies are capable of too. And we're keeping track of what, you know, have they done their big super, you know, teleport across the room and, you know, stun us all move. Oh, that hasn't happened yet, that might still be coming. The thing is, Marvel Champions is just a bit more messy. It's a bunch more globbed together, and there's just less opportunity to try to predict what your opponent is going to do. I'm not saying it's not there. Of course it is. And as you know these enemies better and better, um, you know, or their, their sidekicks, depending on how you build the decks, you can still predict and, and look for certain things. It's all still there, but Gloomhaven makes it a lot easier to keep track of what has happened and what hasn't happened because of the strict delineation of the two different types of things. That, plus the fact the Gloomhaven's event deck sometimes has good things that happen to you um, instead of just nothing but bad things. Overall, that's why I think we prefer the Gloomhaven approach. Um, yeah, but they're both great. I mean, obviously, for a while, Marvel Champions was in my top 10 games of all time, and that was with the system as it is. You're just asking, why do I prefer one over the other? And that would be it. Okay. Thank you, Andres. Next up, Bob says, Rotto, a few months ago, you said something along the lines of, since moving back to the U.S., yours and Jen's lives have become more stressful, and as a result, Jen's preference in gaming trends towards less intense games, while you still tend to enjoy games with tight, intense decisions. I may not have stated that perfectly, but it got me thinking a slightly different path about games with different levels of difficulty or thinkiness for different players within the same game. I think this could be a common scenario for gaming groups or couples that have different levels of experience or wants in modern board games. Merchant's Cove comes to mind as the central board has a shared experience that's not too heavy, while individual um, tunes have varying levels of complexity. 
I'm surprised you call them tunes, but I understand what you mean. It's an asymmetric game. Everybody has, you know, their own completely unique game they're playing. And they're, you know, some of them are more complex than others. The Captain versus the Oracle, as an example. I'm curious if you know of any other games that might be along those lines. My wife and I love your channel. Thank you for what you do. Well, yeah, sure. I know of one right off the top of my head, uh, and it was in my top 10 games of last year. I think it's fantastic. It's called Free Radicals, and it's the same basic idea as Merchant's Cove. Uh, in the box, there are 10 different games of varying levels of complexity, pick-up-and-deliver games, Moncala games, deck-building games, adventure games, and every time you play, each player is going to get their own board and play their own unique game. And they can play the one they really like, or the... you know. I mean, now, I don't think there's much variety amongst these games in terms of complexity. They're all kind of at the same level. But still, I think you're going to have a situation playing Free Radicals where, oh, you know what? Um, this type of game generally suits you better. Uh, you know, Person X. And this type of game suits me better. And with 10 games in the box, you're going to have so much variety. So, right off the bat, Free Radicals is phenomenal. Now, are there other ones? <clears throat> Well, there are. I mean, you know, there's uh, you know the stuff from Leader Games, Root, and before it, Vast really kind of popularized this new idea of hey, you know what? How about we throw three or four or five or ten different games in the box and let everybody play their own little mini game while they're pulled together on some central element that makes them still interact with each other. Uh, now, you know, Vast and Root are though are in-your-face, attacky, uh, wargamey type things where players are constantly trying to beat each other. So I'm not interested in that. And honestly, that's why I'm not interested in Merchant's Cove because the central game, the mercantile element of the game, can be really, really cutthroat. Too much for me and Jen. But that's why I love Free Radicals so much and why it made my top 10 of the year. Now, the big question is, are there other games that do this? And to find out, we are going to go over to Board Game Geek. Because really, those are the only two I can think of that work for me and Jen. Um, let's see. Let's just go to Free Radicals on Board Game Geek or Free Radicala. I can type Free Radicals. Radicals. There we go. And I mean, I don't. I'm looking to see is this basically a mechanism that Board Game Geek uh, recognizes, and we could find other mechanisms or a category or something like that. Let's see. Action points chaining. I don't think it is. Uh, yeah, economics. So it looks like Board Game Geek has not come up with a classification for this type of game. So if I can't find it based on that, it would have been handy if it was. My next thing is to go look at Geekless that this game might be on. All right, I'm zoomed in. All right, we go Geekless and see if there are any Geekless where people have come up with a list of all the types of games that do this. Um, right, there are a bunch, but I'm not seeing anything that... Ah, yeah, and you'd think, folks... You think I would have done this ahead of time, so you don't have to watch me just scroll through lists of stuff. That is kind of disappointing, because this is such a cool, new, relatively new thing. Don't get me wrong, it's been around forever. I mean, there is a very popular series of war games called the Coin Games, or Counterinsurgency Games. They've been doing this for years if not decades, but only if you're interested in hardcore war games. The idea of this stuff happening in, you know, my neck of the woods, you know, uh, you know, Euro games is a relatively new thing. But, ah, let's see, there it is on, on my list. Alrighty. But yeah, it looks like nobody, or at least nobody has made a geek list on Board Game Geek listing all the games that do this and put Free Radicals on the list. But, you know, Free Radicals would have 
would have made the list because I think, you know, I mean, that's that's its main claim to fame is that, it, to my way of thinking anyway, it does it better than any other game that's done it so far. So, in the absence of that, the last thing I can suggest you do, Bob, if you're looking for more of these, is actually go to faq.rado.com because I think my it's my question number five. FAQ entry number five is, hey, I love X. What should I go and find? And I've often found the best way to get the answer to that question is go to the link that's in my FAQ question number five um, because it takes you to the recommendation form on BoardGameGeek. And Bob, if you post the same question you asked me to this... Uh, to this group, I guarantee you, within a day, you will be deluged with suggestions. If there's anything else out there that fits this bill, the the denizens of Board Game Geek will tell you about it. And they'll give you other suggestions as well. I mean, you can do a back and forth. Um, the recommendations form on Board Game Geek is by far the single most valuable resource in all of board gaming. Not just on Board Game Geek, but in the entire concept of modern board games. I mean, I am so happy... 12 years ago, when I first got into modern board games, I found the uh, recommendation forum within the first couple of months of me trying to figure out what games we liked because it was such an invaluable resource and it continues to be. So, Bob, run, do not walk to faq.rado.com, go to question number five, which will take you to the recommendations forum and ask that question and you'll get a better. And, you know, I'm sorry, I would love to give you more answers myself, but. I've given you the best one, but there are probably other ones out there too, and I will let Board Game Geek take over. Okay, anyway, let's move on then. Daniel says, Luck in Co-op Games Part 5, The Conclusion. Oh, Daniel, it's been an epic journey, and we're almost to the end, so let's go. Um... Uh, preface. When I play Aeon's End, I always randomize all levels of the boss deck, so I don't know if Dire Abattoir is coming, the one where you can take damage equal to your life, so I can't prepare. And when we play, one player always has more gems uh, so he can pay... Oh, this must be what you... Oh, God, for he can pay for enemy power cards, and it happened frequently that that player couldn't pay, so prep or no equip, uh, it can end the game. Again, Daniel, it only ends the game if you're almost dead anyway, which means... If that one card can come along and just instantly wipe you out, um, then that means that that means that was the final player. Everybody else has already been KO'd, and um, yeah, and, and it's over. I don't think that's the case. Again, you're bearing the lead. Folks, this is a continuation that Daniel and I have been going back and forth on now, I guess for five months, um, where he keeps saying, isn't it crappy that when um, cooperative games throw in insta-lose cards. You know, they just instantly wipe you out and there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can prepare. It just says, oh, you drew the event card that says everybody loses. And my um, counterpoint to Daniel has always been, yes, that would be terrible if it happens. And it doesn't. If that is in a game, it is a sign of a bad design or certainly a bad card in a maybe an otherwise good game and you should just take that card out. But your examples for Aeon's End are fundamentally not working because even if the card comes out and you don't have, you can't prevent the effect from happening, all it's going to do is KO one player and that just puts you in more danger. It doesn't instantly end the game. So it's still... I, we're going to have to agree to disagree on this, Daniel, as we come to Luck in uh, Co-op Games Part 5, the conclusion, because this is not an example of what you've said is... 
I would agree, a totally valid concern. You know what, Daniel? I haven't mentioned this before. I can think of one card I've seen that is total hot garbage in events. And it's interesting. It's in my second highest ranked game of all time. It's Shadowrun Crossfire. One of the higher level event cards that can hit you late in the game. I don't remember the name of it. I should have looked it up. But it's basically a card that says, hey, when you reveal this card, do this really, do, do this bad thing that hurts you, and then draw another one. Honestly, I think that's garbage. I think that's a really crappy card, and it might as well be removed from the deck because. In a perfect world, my expectation is that the designers have created all of these events such that they create excitement and twists and drama, which is what we talked about in the last entry of this ongoing discussion, but that they are not fundamentally broken, that they do not lead to the situation you're talking about. And Shadowrun Crossfire is very well known for being incredibly harsh and brutal and punishing. So, to put a card that says, hey, take an already incredibly harsh and brutal and punishing you know, whatever it is you're about to draw, and then make it even worse by drawing this card first that says, oh, do a bad thing, and then draw another card that you were already going to draw anyway. I think that one is, even though it's in my favorite, my second favorite game of all time, it is one of the worst cards from a design perspective I've ever seen. And um, if we draw that, we say, nope, that's the BS card, and we just move on to the next one. Um... Here's the deal, Daniel. If you really hate Dire Abattoir that much, as you say, you randomize the uh, boss deck, which is one of the cool things about Aeon's Zen. Just leave that card out, buddy. No one is holding a gun to your head and saying that card must be in the game or else the entire experience you have is invalidated. If there are a few cards in there, because Aeon's End now has so many cards. If you want to leave a few of them, I mean, it's no different than statistically, oh, that card just ended up at you know, the bottom of the deck and you weren't likely to see it or something like that. I mean, if you don't like it, take it out. But I still maintain that it does not do what you say it does. It does not um, put your friend who um, didn't have enough to be able to pay to get rid of the card, it doesn't instantly lose the game for you. It just ratchets the game to another level of tension. Now, to be fair, that's what the Shadowrun Crossfire card does too. But to me, that one goes over the line and Dire Abattoir does not. Anyway, though, continuing on, uh, Daniel says, next question, are games... Are game over oh I, I love how you change this. They're not just game over cards, but they're game over adjacent cards. Like Dire Avatar, always a good because of drama. When do they become not good? When are they not being good? Well, hey, I just gave you an example. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, you know, I, like I said, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, you know, what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna pause and I'm gonna, I'm gonna name and shame that card. Hold on. Okay, I found it. Although I had to get my glasses out to be able to read because oh, I'm getting old and the font on these is is small. But here's the card in question. One hot minute. And man, looking through this deck of event cards just reminded me how brutal this game is. Oh man, Daniel, if you think Aeon's End is unfair to you, do not try Shadowrun Crossfire. But um, reveal two extra cards at the top of the Crossfire deck, which is the event deck. Resolve all effects on him as if they were the current Crossfire. So this basically says, oh, if this event happens, make 
two events happen back to back. Um, and the interesting thing is, if this comes later in the game, which is what this uh, plus six means, that it's ha if it happens early, hey, instead of drawing dealing with one event, you have to deal two. At the end of the game, when you're, when, believe me, in this game, you are just barely scraping by. Um, instead of having to deal with one event when we're on death's door, reveal three events and deal with them. This is maybe one of the most garbage cards I've ever seen in any game. And again, it is in my favorite, one of my favorite games of all time. And yeah, this is ridiculous because the thing is, I go about this working under the assumption that the designers have tried to ensure, with, 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 with some wiggle room, that all of these cards are comparably challenging. Yes, there can be different circumstances where, oh, this one's a bit tougher than normal or a bit easier than normal. But kind of across the board, all other things being equal, they all provide the same level of challenge. One Hot Minute does not. One Hot Minute says, oh, I am demonstrably, undeniably, two or three times harder than any other card in the deck. And if this game was designed so that you can just barely make it to the end with all the cards at their normal difficulty, having one card in the deck that is triple difficulty, and it says it right on the card, yeah, I'm three times as hard as any other card in the deck, just seems like garbage. And this is a garbage thing. It actually took me a while to find it. I was start when I couldn't find it, I was starting to think, oh, maybe I literally threw this or burned it on a pyre because this is a bad, bad card. Um, because it breaks that rule. To me, Dire Abattoir does not because it's not an instant lose. And to me, uh, it's just a different scary, scary, uh, you know, eventful, dramatic, almost traumatic thing that can happen to you. But it is something that is within keeping of the difficulty level of all the cards. Or at least, it feels that way to me. I've not run any numbers, but I, the developers have earned my trust enough that I believe in it. And the same thing is true for Shadow and Crossfire, except for one hot minute, which is one hot piece of garbage card. So that would be a case of it going too far, because they broke the covenant and showed me, yeah, this card is literally unbalanced and literally unfair in the worst possible way. It was literally worse than I remember it being, and I remember it being pretty bad already. Okay, uh, next up. Gloomhaven as number one, uh, the continuation. Although, you know it's not number one anymore, right? I think it's like number three now, but still. How much did the people who mostly play Euro games and have always wanted a dungeon crawler but felt like roll to resolve games with very little depth weren't for them contribute to Gloomhaven's success? Oh, I think that's huge. Uh, I, I think that's a very important thing. And it's, it's so sad, too, because I played Gloom, I'm pretty sure I played Gloomhaven and covered it on the channel the same year that I played another really super smart Euro approach to dungeon crawls called uh, Mouth of Perdition. Is that right? I think... Oh, they changed the number, though, didn't they? Perdition. Perdition's Mouth? Oh, that's going to drive me nuts. Oh. Uh, all right. Oh, oh, it's got... All right, that's right. I forgot. It's got a new version of it, a card game version. Yeah, but Perdition's Mouth, the Abyssal Rift. And that was another game that was right out around the same time as Gloomhaven. And if Gloomhaven hadn't existed, maybe Perdition's Mouth, which basically added Rondell a very Euro-y mechanism to, you know, traditional uh, dungeon crawling. Maybe that one would have been the thing to reign supreme. And, uh, but, you know, it was just wrong place at wrong time. Maybe it had been out a year earlier. But yeah, I definitely think 
there was a primed and ready to go audience for people, people like me, who love action and adventure. I love the Lord of the Rings. I grew up watching, um, you know, Saturday morning cartoons. These are my favorite types of shows. And, um, but I didn't want to play the way these games were traditionally represented by fantasy, you know, as typified by fantasy flight games and everybody else followed their lead of, yeah, you know what? It's just a bunch of random stuff that happens and you roll a lot of dice and there's some randomness and random, 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 um, and, uh, yeah. So, um, what's it? Uh, you know, Gloomhaven was definitely in the right place at the right time after, Literally decades of these games existing, following an existing formula that, um, you know, because there were other ones. I mean, gosh, the, uh, oh, there's a very good series, but again, it had a lot of dice in it. Oh, there were a few that I played over the years prior to Gloomhaven. And, you know, we, I thought, man, I really like this, but I just don't stick with it. I mean, heck, really, I mean, you go back far enough, everything uh, basically was, uh, you know, expanding from those old 80s games, you know, Hero Quest and Dungeon Quest, right? And that that just became the blueprint, the template that nobody, you know, that people innovated within, but never really said, hey, what if we just start over from scratch? And Gloomhaven did it. And Perdition's Mouth did it. And a few other games did as well. And so, yeah, I mean, there's a huge advantage to being first mover into a space. Would that have been enough if Gloomhaven had been a more traditional box size, let's say, that offered a campaign that gave you 10 missions, right? I don't think so. I think Gloomhaven's success ultimately is a combination of things. Um, you know, it is the fact that it provided this, you know, it wasn't the only one, but it was the one in the right place at the right time with the right combination of stuff and the right price too. Man, the original Gloomhaven originally on, on if you backed it the first one run, I think it like cost like 79 bucks or something like that. I always wondered, uh, did Isaac Childress take a huge bath? Did he lose money hand over fist in that? Uh, because he got the uh, reprint up very, very quickly, and the price went up very, very quickly too. Um, but anyway, uh, I you know, Gloomhaven's success was a combination of things. But, you know, it was the nobody was... Uh, no, nobody put that much content in a box at that time. Yes, there was... Um, the the game with all the naked people running around that I can't think of now that uh, but I mean that was such a niche game and it did so much to turn people off and I can't uh, Kingdom Death Monster yes Kingdom Death Monster did the same kind of thing but Kingdom Death Monster is a million miles away from let's say mainstream accessible uh, Gloomhaven was Gloomhaven was approachable for people who like dungeon crawls uh, and so and you're right you're right to call it out Gloomhaven brought Euro gameplay mechanisms into a traditionally Ameritrack venue, milieu. Uh, that, combined with the absolutely ridiculous amount of content, the likes of which the industry had never seen before, because no publisher in their right mind would throw in five a game and four expansions worth of content all into one box, and then only charge you 70 bucks for it. Or maybe 80 bucks, I forget exactly, but it was so cheap. Um, so yeah, it was... 
You know, it was a perfect storm of stuff that just catapulted it once people started getting their hands on it. And people who missed it had to get their hands on it. And it was still a, you know, a, you know, a, a ridiculously low price. Because, don't forget, um, you know, Gloomhaven did some smart stuff too. Like not putting 50,000 miniatures to keep prices down. Hey, let's do a bunch of standees instead. I mean, so there were definitely smart moves across the board. Let's not throw in, you know, um, 20 different t- double-sided boards for all the different maps we want with all this variety. Let's have people just, you know, snap them together, which of course they were not the first to do that. It was a whole combination of smart decisions that Isaac uh, did. But you're a right to call out the inherent Euroiness of it, because that was fresh and new and different. Not alone, but again, right place at the right time for Gloomhaven. Okay. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Next, we go to Darren, who says, question, what's the best game you will never play? Undaunted, as an example. That's a really hard one to answer, Darren. Because I would play Undaunted. I don't want to play Undaunted, but I would. I mean, I appreciate it. I mean, I watched uh, Kimberly, Kimberly covered Undaunted for the channel, and I thought, wow, that looks amazing. That's one of those kind of games that makes me sad. My brain is the way it is because I am denying myself so many amazing experiences. But I don't intend to deny myself those experiences. If the opportunity to play Undaunted came along, and what would that opportunity be? It would have to be somebody who is super passionate about it, who is willing to do all the heavy lifting, because I don't want to have to exert myself to play a game that I'm probably not going to enjoy, even if I respect it. Because here's the deal. I would want to play Undaunted knowing that I would not necessarily have a good time, but that I would come away with a greater respect for it. Because I am a student of design. I was a professional video game designer for almost two decades. And while I am not a professional board game designer, I am a professional board game de- a design critic. Um, and I, I, I mean, it's what I love. I, more than beautiful, intricate, rich narrative or wonderful, evocative art or, um, you, know, uh, you know, silky, smooth, uh, wonderful to the touch components. What really gets me excited about a game is design. And even if it's a game that I'm not going to like for various and sundry reasons, I've, I'll still appreciate it. So I would totally play Undaunted. So, then the real question, which is going to be hard, is what is the best game that I simply will not play? And, I mean, then you have to ask, well, what is just the best game? Period, right? So, let's go back to Board Game Geek. Let's go back to the browser. And, uh, Board Game Geek, uh, what do I need to do? I need to browse the Board Game Geek Top 100. There's got to be... we got to use something as a metric for what is the greatest game of all time. Let's go with this. And, um, right, just going down. Uh, I have played, have played, have played. 
have played. Twilight Imperium, 4th edition. I have not played. But I would totally, if the timing was right, someday I hope to sit down with Shay and Ruel because it's both of their favorite games of all time and maybe a few other people and you know spend a lazy afternoon into the evening. But I'd probably try to get everybody to... Let's not try and dwell too much. Let's try and get this done in five hours. I would totally, in the right circumstances, give Twilight Imperium 4th Edition a try. I feel like I should. I feel like I'm an incomplete gamer uh, if I haven't. Or no, that's not fair. I do not want to put the idea in anybody's head that there is any game that you must play, and if you don't play it, you are therefore not a true gamer. That's crap. I know there are people out there who say, oh, if you haven't played this, then you're not really a board gamer. No, not interested in that. I I do not agree with that argument. I mean, but uh, for me, I'm a board game professional, and I feel like I am not as good a professional as I could be having not played that. I've watched a lot of videos. I've watched Shay's How to Play from start to finish, stem to stern. So I do know the game, but I I would still play it. Continuing on, then we just got more and more games I played. Oh, okay, number nine, War of the Rings 2nd Edition. That one gives me real pause. Interesting, number 10, Star Wars Rebellion. Um, Yeah, I'd play that. I'd be interested in playing it. I don't know if I'd finish it. Because I think I'd play it enough turn to say, okay, I think I get it. I'm really not having a good time, but I'd want to try it. And, I mean, War of the Rings 2nd Edition is such a big deal. But I know. I mean, it's just such a... Well, no, that's not true. I need to look into it more. I've never really looked into War of the Ring that much. But isn't a sizable part, isn't it a very asymmetric game? One player is playing a traditional war game, and the other player is, yeah, I'm playing a war game, but only as a distraction to do this other thing that I really want to do, which is get the ring to Mount Doom and, and blow it all up and stuff like that. So I guess if I had the opportunity to play the side of good, not because I want to be a goody two-shoes, but because I would want to have that experience of, oh yeah, I've got to deal with this war game stuff, but that's really beside the point to me. What I'm really interested in is pursuing this kind of hidden movement game. If I recall correctly, I think that's what... I am intrigued enough by that to want to try it. Again, I don't know if I'd finish it, because, I mean, that's the same problem I would have with uh, you know Twilight Imperium. I don't know if I want to spend three-plus hours on any game, period. That's another real hard pass for me. But I can imagine a circumstance where I could see that happening. So, you know, it's a never-say-never. So, uh, so far, I haven't said never. And again, most of these, almost every single one of these I've played. I've played Twilight Struggle. Um, You know, I haven't played Scythe, but I would totally play Scythe with the right place at the right time. I'm not interested in it at all because I feel like I know Scythe well enough. I don't think I would even get anything out of playing it. But if there were people who really, really, really wanted to play a game with me and they really loved Scythe and there was nothing else to play. But see, that's me really putting in a lot of caveats. I have zero interest in it. But actually, that's not true. I do have an interest in playing that game. So I guess under the right circumstances, I would play Nemesis. I mean, really, the reality is probably the only games I would not play are going to be like um, straight-up hardcore war games that have... I mean, War of the Ring got a pass because it's a straight-up war game, but then it has this other element to it. But I don't know if um, Warhammer is in the top 100, but I have zero interest. And if somebody really wanted me to do it, I don't know if, I would, I don't know if I'd be nice and say yes just to be nice. I might, but I, I, I'd, you'd be really hard-pressed. But still, I mean, I've played Root. That's a war game. I've, you know, I've, I've played games that I knew I wouldn't like. I've played Barrage. Oh my god, one of the meanest, nastiest games I've ever played. For no good reason. <laughs> um, did not have to be that way. But uh, I've played Blood Rage, uh, which might surprise some people. 
So I've played a lot of games that people would assume I would not play. And I'm afraid I'm going to get to the end of the Board Game Geek Top 100 and not find a single answer of a game that if you asked me to at a convention, I would steadfastly out and out refuse. I mean, I really want to play Kingdom Death Monster. I really, really do. Uh, even though I suspect I won't like it. But I really want to give it a try because there's elements of it that are very intriguing to me. Uh, you know, I mentioned that because it just flew by as I'm scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. And I mean, almost, I probably 85% of all these games I have played. I would love to play Battlestar Galactica someday. I mean, I, I think that would be great. I like um, Deception and, you know, playing mind games and stuff. And yeah, okay, I made it through the BGG Top 100 and there was not a single game in here that I would not play if the opportunity were right. So Darren, I almost feel... Mm. Hold on a second. Sorry, I had to get a drink of water. My throat was <clears throat> still... <clears throat> the question, Darren, almost should have been, what's the best game I'll never play again? That's an interesting topic because there's a bunch of games I've played that are like, no. Uh, I mean, heck, I mean, I, I, I could make a list as long as I mean, because so I, I, again, I crave novelty, I crave new experiences. So I couldn't find anything in the Board Game Geek Top 100, the greatest 100 board games of all time. So if I couldn't find one there, I don't know what I mean. I oh, yo, oh, hey, okay, I found one. I found one. I just went to the next page and I found one almost immediately. Twilight Imperium Third Edition. Now that's kind of cheating. Because I'll play 4th edition. I'll play whatever the newest, greatest one is, but there's no way I'm going to play that and I'm going to do a comparison analysis to the 3rd edition or the 2nd edition. Certainly that's not going to happen at all. But that's kind of cheating because if I played the 4th edition, haven't I really played the 3rd edition uh, in some way? Yeah. It's, um, it's going to be a game, whatever the greatest game is. And I'm surprised. It used to be there were several of these you know, just straight up old school war games in the Board Game Geek Top 100. And now I've made it to the Top 150 and I haven't seen a single one of them yet. But it's going to be one of those that is widely regarded as in, um, you know, infallibly great that I would say, yeah, I, I won't play that. You, yeah, sorry, there's nothing in there of any interest. I do not want to spend any of my time on this planet experiencing that game. People might say Star Wars X-Wings Miniatures. I played Star the Star Trek version of Star Wars X-Wing Miniatures. I played that. I've played lots of combat battle games. I've even enjoyed a few. But, um, yeah. Gosh. What would I? What would I not do? Uh, what would I just say a flat no to? I played Memoir Forty Four. I thought it was cool. I wished it was. I mean, I loved the gameplay system of that. I wished it was applied to a different game, but it wasn't, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, we're we've almost made it through. Okay, there you go. Command and Colors Ancients. There you go. I found one. The greatest game of all time that I will never play, Darren, is Command and Colors. Pick a title. And if I recall correctly, I think Command and Colors is the same kind of really brilliant card system as, uh, what's it, Memoir 44? So I feel like, hey, I've already experienced that in a game that I didn't like, so why play a game I'll, like, I'll hate even more to experience the thing I've already experienced? Because that whole Command si card system is, is wonderful. Um, yeah, I've played Captain Sonar. Um, I've played Go. Yeah, so there we go. I found it. I found it. And I guess it was no surprise, but it was an interesting thought exercise. And Darren, 
I don't know if I want to, to encourage you to write me to questions at Rado.com again and ask, well, what is the best game you'll never play again? Because that would be a harder one to do. Okay, uh, let's move on to the next one. We have Dest. Dest says, oh my gosh. This is why this was in my head, because I dimly recall Dest had this question. Do you know of any game that uses the command and color system that has a non-violent, non-war theme? I used to love Memoir 44 and Battlecry, but I'm not interested in dark themes or war games now. Yes, you're right. I played Memoir 44, and I forgot. I played the uh, fantasy version. of Was that Battlecry, or was that something else? And it's such a shame. This uh, system of cards you can play to lanes to affect different things is so good! And it's only used for fighting! Why hasn't somebody made a Euro with this? Well, Dest, we're going to find out if somebody has. I, sus I suspect if it had, I would have heard of it. But let's come back to the browser. Let's scroll back up to... Where was it? Um, the thing that was just on the... Oh, and I just pushed the wrong button. Let's come back to me. There was a brief overhead view. For people watching instead of listening. All right, what am I looking for? Uh, command and... All right, colors. There we go. So I'm pretty sure this has been around long enough that it is a definite mechanism. Right, it's a war game. It's an ancient war game. It is command cards. That's what we're talking about here. Command cards. Players have a hand of cards that allow them to activate and perform actions to a subset of their units. There is nothing stopping that. There, Battle Lore was the one I played. And I have played Memoir 44. And I have not played any of the other ones. And I don't have any interest to because I've already felt like I've gotten it. And I've seen how brilliant it is. And why? Why does it only apply, as it says here in the description, to units in combat games? Why can't it apply to different engines I've built? In an engine building, and I've got three or four of them, and I play a card that lets me combine these two or those two. My God! God, how brilliant would that be? But anyway, there are 313 games classified as command card games. Let's take a look and see if we find any that aren't combat related. Well, right off the bat, whoops, what the heck is 15 minutes to self-destruct? It's a cooperative game! Dest, there's a cooperative game that uses command cards. It's called 15 minutes to destruct. It came out in 2020. Oh, baby. Okay, well, now things are getting interesting. All right, let's, uh, let's abandon the, ca the family category, which is what we were just looking at. Let's go to advanced search. Boop, boop, boop. Advanced search. And folks, I'm doing this as much as anything else to answer Dad's question, because I'm curious about it too, but also to teach people who might be watching or listening, hey, how can I use Board Game Geek to answer these questions for myself? I'm teaching desks to fish. So let's go to uh, you know advanced search, filter by mechanic. We need command cards. Right? Isn't it? It's in here. It's going to be... Yeah, there we go. Command cards. All right. And let's turn off expansions. Don't care. Okay, here's a funky thing. Let's see if I own any games that actually do this. Owned by Rado. But you could type in any. You could type in Tom Vassell and see what command card games he owns. Um, if he keeps his collection up to date like I do. Nope, I do not own any. Although I'm interested in that 15-minute self-destruct. Okay, so let's turn that back off. Uh, none. But let's keep the command cards on, and let's turn on another command card, or another one, which is just the dumbest one. I've complained about this so many times. Why are is cooperative gaming considered a mechanism when, in fact, it's a category? Regardless, I'm going to say cooperative games that feature command cards. Submit. Oh my god, there are a bunch. There are a bunchy bunch. But now here's the deal. I've played some of these. Um, because I see... 
Oh, that's interesting. Dawn of Peacemakers. I didn't think of that one. Dest, go watch my run-through of the original Dawn of uh, Peacemakers. Actually, if I recall correctly, I think there's a new sequel to it that's on Kickstarter right now. It's very interesting because Dawn of Peacemakers and the new one, like Trial of the Peacemakers, or I forget what it's called, Tragedy of the Peacemakers. Uh, oh, I think it's like Peacemakers, The Horrors of War or something like that. It's a war game. It's a war game that's driven by a command card system. But here's the deal. It's a war game that runs automatically on its own because the two warring factions are fighting and we, our players, cooperatively running around on the battlefield trying to get everybody to stop fighting because we are the peacemakers. It's such a brilliant idea. So that's an example of one. Um, and a Great Wall... I played Great Wall. It says Aeon Trespass Odyssey does it too, which I have not played. Um, and I have to admit, up until this second, I had zero interest in playing that game because it's a lot of dice rolling and stuff. Spaceship Unity, that's a game I definitely want to play. I but here's the deal. Remember, this, folks, this is all user-driven content. Either the publisher says, oh, yeah, I feel like I've got command cards when you don't really. You've got something you're just calling command cards. So some of these might be mislabeled. But honestly, Dest, this I think is worth doing a, uh, a you know deep dive on, and not just sort you know sorting by cooperative games, but sort by other things. Do a search for games that have command cards, which again might be just too broadly applied to some games, but it's going to give you some stuff to search for, and uh, do one that is like what what's what's a definite what's a what's the most euroy mechanism rondels because there's a previous question about rondels right or was there or am I just thinking about rondels? Because I just played a really nice Rondell game the other day. That might be it, too. Um, yeah. Uh, 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 Kelta is a great Rondell game. It's fresh in my mind. Claw and Chivalry are two games that claim to have the command card system and bring a Rondell in. Um, so there are options out there. I wouldn't have thought there were Dest. But having shown you what to do, I'll leave it to you now to do that research. All righty. And I am definitely going to look a little more into 15 minutes to self destruction because honestly just the title alone gets me intrigued by that and it slipped between the cracks it was off my radar i've never heard of it i never added it to my wish list i'm not sure why i missed it so there maybe there maybe there there's hope yet dest okay then we go to gerald who says do any of your top 10 games of 2022 or your current top three games in 2023 have the punishing rosenberg shackles Gerald loves talking about the shackles. It's, it's, a, it's a term I came up with many, many years ago to explain why I love Agricola. Because, and other Rosenberg games. For quite a while in his career, Uwe Rosenberg, one of my favorite designers of all time, one of the greats of modern Euro board game design, would have a tendency to make these beautiful, wonderful clockwork mechanisms, but then put some really restrictive, harsh thing that if you did not do, you would be punished. And you know, it's usually typically representing game by having to feed your workers. And if you fail to feed them, you will suffer harsh consequences. And I have mentioned in the past how I really respond strongly to that because I love it when a game gives me a tricky problem to solve. A puzzle of, here's what I need to do, here's what's standing in my way, how can I make myself feel smart and get the dopamine rush in my brain by saying, oh, I've done it, I've hit all the things I need to do, and I've achieved the other thing. 
So, and I call them the Rosenberg shackles, even though, ironically, Uwe Rosenberg himself does not employ them very much anymore. Back in the uh, the brilliant days of the trilogy, uh, he used to do it a lot, but you know he's really softened in his old age. So anyway, you're asking 2022 and 2023 games. Let's take a look. Let's go back to the browser. And now, folks, we are going to go to top.rado.com. Which, if you decide to do this at home, bear in mind, you might have to refresh the page a few times because every time you go to top.rado.com, it does a query of the Board Game Geek database. And sometimes the Board Game Geek database is a little slow. It, it says, hey, what are all of Rado's games in his collection? And um, what are his rankings of all of them? Which ones does he have videos for? And how did he rank them? And so this is a very useful tool for me that was put together uh, a few years ago, and I love it so much. But anyway, so let's start with 2022. My top 10 games of 2022. Do any of these have harsh restricting shackles? Planet Unknown? No, I don't think so, does it? It has things to avoid, but it doesn't have things where... It doesn't have the equivalent... The science fiction equivalent of, oh, you got to feed your workers. Um, and yeah, or, you know, penalties that are delivered to you. I mean, see, Guild of Merchant Explorers, my number two, it kind of does because you can work really hard for a thing because, you know, this is a game where you're expanding and you're sneaking out and trying to explore all this area. But then at the end of a round, everything retracts and you can lose a lot of progress. It can be incredibly painful in Guild of Merchant Explorers if you ran out of time and you were just one step away from, um, you know, establishing that, that village out in the middle of nowhere so that you could build from there next turn. And I would call that a pretty harsh punishment if you fail to achieve what you're... If you try for something and it doesn't work out... It's it's harsh, so I would not give. I, I can't. I don't recall. And to be fair, I have not played all the different planets on Planet Unknown, so maybe maybe there were some. But yeah, Guild of Merchant Explorers, I would say, has it. Revive, revive. Uh, what is that? That's right there, isn't it? That's the. Um, I don't think Revive has anything built in. But here's the deal: Revive provides it from players. Because if you play, uh, if you don't play at peak smartness at all time, play, you can do some really dastardly things to other players in this game. You can really piggyback off of them and take away everything they were trying to do. Not through stealing or you know, destroying stuff, not that, but rather, um, hey, I, I've been exploring, trying to find the perfect spot. I finally found it, but now it's your turn and you rush in and you... Um, you know, build in that area, and now I can't build there. And that can be... Pre- but, you know, that's not the game doing it. That's another player doing it. So, I don't think Revive has it. Isle of Cats has a minor one. Uh, because if, you know, there are a bunch of rats on the boat, and if you don't get those rats covered up, you will suffer. You know, the, the fewer rats you take care of, the bigger the penalty you will suffer. So I would say Isle of... It's nowhere near as bad as the feeding in Agricola, but it's got a minor element of it. Marrakesh, Marrakesh, oh my gosh, yeah, Marrakesh has got the Feld shackles. Felds, I mean, straight up, as part of setup, you're going to play through three eras, and at the end of each era, you are going to have to pay. The people are going to demand food, they're going to demand money, they're going to demand water. You set that up as part of setup. You're the one who chooses, hey, at the end of the first era, I got to have that. At the end of the second era, I got to give them that. At the end of the third era, I got to give them that. And that, if you, especially if you don't do that final one, if you're just one away from paying off, you've got to pay everything. And it's, oh, it's just, it, it is terrifying. So Marrakesh is a great example. Um, so, I mean, I'm not even going to go through the rest of the top five because, or the top 10, there was, there were a few of them just in my top five. Then you want to know about 2023. Does Earth, I haven't played Earth for a while, but no, 
No, I don't think Earth does. And Evenfall doesn't. And Sagrada Artisans doesn't. Archaeo Society, uh, some of the tracks have something similar, but it's not a major thing. Forbidden Jungle, of course, is a cooperative game. Every co-op game is implicitly, on some level or other, a Rosenberg Shackley kind of game because it's all about throwing in things that if you don't do this stuff, you will be punished harshly. And yeah, certainly Forbidden Jungle does that. Um, oh, I think, if I recall correctly, Rebuilding Seattle does. Does Barcelona? Yes, Barcelona does as well at number seven. Because uh, you have to make sure that, oh, what? It's not Gaudi you're making, you know, the, the famous Portuguese architect who is the founder of urban modernism. He has things, and if you don't do what he wants, it will hurt. Or, you know, is it? Or is it that you will miss out? Because here's the thing Rosenberg Shackles, I mean, Every time I hear somebody like, say, Tom Vassell complain that I hate feeding my people in Agricola, it's so garbage. Why do you punish me if I don't do what you make me want to do? I never even look at it that way. To me, that makes no sense. Because it's just flip the script in your head, Tom, buddy. Don't think of it as, oh, if I fail to feed my people, I lose five points per person in Agricola. No. Functionally... It's just as easy to say that if I feed my people, I gain five points. Because in the overall net score at the end of the game, there is functionally no difference from losing five points and gaining five points. It's the exact same thing. In fact, you could score it that way in Agricola if you wanted. You could literally say that um, every time you successfully feed your person have some cubes from another game off to the side and grab one. Every time, you, for every family member you feed, grab one of these successfully fed, kept my people happy cubes. And at the end of the game, count up all the cubes you've got and multiply it by five. Functionally, it's the exact same thing as, oh, collecting the negative fives when you fail to feed. And it just becomes a positive feedback loop instead of a negative feedback loop. But here's the deal. You just have to understand. Maybe that's one of the reasons I like it. I respond to it because I know when I feed my people, I'm scoring five points. Make no mistake. In much the same way that every time I place a tile on the board, I'm scoring one point. Because if I didn't fill that space in, I would lose a point at the end of the game. But for me, it's like positive. I scored a point there, a point there, a point there, a point there. I scored five points there, five points there, five points there. So the shackles aren't even a thing. They don't really exist. Uh, they're all in your brain. You, you are interpreting them incorrectly, whoever you might be who hates feeding people. I mentioned Tom because he's railed against this for years on his channel, The Dice Tower. You might have heard of it. Um, and uh, it's never made sense to me because you're just looking at it wrong, baby. Just look at it from a positive light. Um, anyway, though. So, Gerald, that... Um, yeah, so anyway, there definitely have been. Gerald's next question. Some designers think it's better for their um, player, for their players or marketing if their game doesn't have any changes to the two-player experience, I'm happy to see changes for two-player when reading a rulebook. It actually worries me if there are no changes. How about you? I agree completely. Um, a two, I, I, I think on some level there is just a fundamental misunderstanding, not only amongst players, but amongst game developers too. In fact, I know this because I have talked to game developers where they think, oh yeah, it works okay. I mean, I, I'm one of... Uh, John D. Clare, right? Uh, arguably, I think his most popular successful game design is Space Base. 
And I famously said, I am not keeping this game because I think they did a terrible job on the two-player implementation Uh, because they didn't do anything to scale the game down. Because Space Base is a game where, hey, when it's not my turn, I care about what you're doing because if you roll your dice and it matches my... You know, it's the Machi Koro thing. If it matches the cards I played, I get a passive benefit on your turn and I love it. And I do think that's great. I think the Machi Koro approach, I don't know if Machi Koro invented it, but they popularized it, is a beautiful system that I've seen in lots of games. Space Base is probably arguably the most popular implementation of it, and it's terrible for two. Its original original release of it was terrible for two. Why? Because the coolest, most fun element of the game, me getting goodies on your turn in a two-player game, only happens once. Whereas if I'm playing a four-player game, I get three opportunities every round for it to happen. That is literally three times more fun than it is in a one-player game. The fun thing just doesn't happen as often. And I had the opportunity to talk to John about this many years later. Because very, very quickly, after I complained about it in my video, um, the folks at AEG and John said, oh my god, he's right. And in the next printing, uh, in in the second edition of Space Base, they put in a two-player variant that is literally exactly what I suggested they do in my video. Because this would have made it so much better. And I'm not keeping it because they didn't do it. And I'm assuming they just considered it and decided, oh, this is broken for the game, so I got, I'm not going to do a homebrew variant, but this is what they should do. They went ahead and adopted my homebrew variant as the official rule now to make it better for two. And the game is now better. And I talked to John about it years later. And he said, yeah, my brain... My, I was mostly viewing this as... I, I was mostly playtesting it and designing it with a high player count in mind. And I realized the game changed as a two-player experience. That it was not the game, the, the the experience I designed. It was something different. But I, as a developer, as the designer of the game, I liked that it was something different. It was me was a fun and interesting change. It was more novel and unique. And so for me, the rare times when I got to play it as a two is like, whoa! I feel like I'm playing a different game now, and um, I appreciate different things about my design. And I thought that was really interesting. Of course, the problem with that is, if you are a couples-only gamer, that means you are always, only, ever going to play that game as a uh, as a curiosity, as just like, oh, <clears throat> yeah. We don't get to play the game. It was the way it was intended to be played. We don't get the true experience. We get this other experience that is interesting, but nowhere near as much fun, quite frankly. Um, And is only compelling viewed through the lens of, oh, well, yeah, if you play it every once in a while like this, you're going to find some interesting vibes that don't normally happen. But don't get me wrong. You're going to go back to playing it the regular way. And so I talked with John about it, and he said, yeah, I immediately realized that while I thought it was kind of cool, I liked the different vibe, I appreciated that that was not good if that was the only vibe you would ever get. And that's not how I would want the game to be experienced, as the only means of playing. And so that's why we made the change. And then subsequently, he told the uh, head of AEG, you should hire this man and basically uh, playtest every single game we do for two-player. And uh, we all laughed and chuckled, and I'm still waiting for that call. Although, actually, um, he is no longer the head of AEG, so that's probably not going to happen. But regardless, um, I very much I thought it was very kind of John to say. And, uh, and, and, and again, very uh, self-aware. It's why John is a great designer, because you know he's not, nope, I did this the right way, and it's the only way to go. Uh, you know, he was still willing to um, you know, hear different opinions and, and, uh, you know, and try to make the game better for everybody. And so back to your question, yes, it is a definite red flag for me 
if a design doesn't do anything to, and if it doesn't say in the rulebook, here's what you do to tighten up the board. Because that experience is so common. Most of these games are designed with higher player counts in mind because they are play-tested by groups. They, uh, the designer plays them with their friends. Um, you know, and that's their main experience. That's what they're going towards. And oh, by the way, right, 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 right. We got to make it two-player. Yeah, okay, this works. And that happens a lot. The number of my videos where I say, oh, I really love this game. Man, I really hope to play it someday as a higher player count game because they did not do the work to make this a two-player game. And often, even to this day, publishers still probably, I don't know, one out of every five games I play, Jen and I walk away feeling that way. It's maybe maybe one out of every seven. I don't know. Very uh, rough back of the napkin estimate. So yeah. Now, I mean, there are, but of course there are some designers. Like, I, one of the reasons I love Stefan Feld is um, because I'm only a two-player gamer. And Stefan Feld is different. While he is developing the game, he plays it ex- almost exclusively two-player. Usually with his wife when he's working out the ideas. And that poor woman, I can't even imagine what she must go through uh, watch, you know, playing all these games with her husband um, and trying to work out all the kinks. And then, you know, he, you know, he, obviously I'm sure he plays with bigger groups too, but he always designs with two player in mind and then, right, okay, does this work for higher player counts as well? And I really appreciate that um, because you'll notice very rarely, maybe almost never do Feld's games have to change for two player because they were designed from the ground up with two player. And on Honestly, board game publishers, designers, there's a reason Feld is the best. I would suggest you give that some thought in your own development processes because, um, you know, I, I think, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the numbers are. I know when I started out like 10 years ago, there was a huge underserved, I mean, the reason Rado broke through, um, you know, in the early days of board game media where there's a bunch of reasons. I had lucky timing, and you know, I, I covered certain games before anybody else did, and I got noticed by Penny Arcade, and that helped a lot. But I think one of the keys to my early success was I was the only person back then talking about, right, let's talk about this as a two-player experience. Nobody cared 10 years ago. Uh, that was just not where the industry was. It's kind of like what we're at now. Um, you know, uh, you know, a few years ago, nobody cared about the solo, but now more and more and more developers are understanding how important it is to focus on solo, which they always it was an afterthought at best back in the day. Back in the day, two player was an afterthought as well, and to this day, it still is sometimes. And yeah, you're right, Gerald. You are right. That is a huge red flag if the rules don't say anything about because oh, I've got to say, there is. Such a a game is almost a, comp- a competitive game, I should say. It's almost a completely different experience when you go to two player as opposed to three or more. That is because zero sum nature. Instantly, everything changes if I only have one opponent because then every point I deny you is a po- is the equivalent of a point I gain. In a three or more player game, every point I deny you is denied me as well. Because if I spend time slowing you down, I've slowed myself down relative to the other people around the table who were not involved in that little back and forth exchange. And that third player is the one who's going to win. And so, multiplayer gaming adds this extra level and fundamentally changes everything as soon as things aren't zero-sum, that every point I deny you is a point I gain. And so, 
you have to take that in mind. You have to. And then you have to do other stuff as well. You have to tighten up the board um, because you can't just have a big sloppy, oh, you know, in a four-player game, I'm always worried I'm not going to be able to do the action I want to do. But in a two-player game, since there's literally half as many workers blocking the space as I want, I never worry. I always get stuff done. It's It creates a different experience. And as John said, you know, that's kind of fun. It's kind of interesting if you really mostly play. But if you mostly play two-player, they need to put the time in. And if they don't, it's obvious. All right. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. Next up, we've got Jeff, who says, I recently got the Oceania expansion for Wingspan, and I noticed that a co-op variant is included. Jeff, when I first read this, and I was putting this Word document together, my jaw hit the freaking floor. I did not know this. I own Oceania. I have played, I've done a video for Oceania, and I had no freaking idea. I immediately went back, got out the rules. Nowhere in the rules for the Oceania expansion does it say... Or on the box, does it say, oh, by the way, there's a co-op mode for the game now. And I never heard this. I've had this expansion for years. It only mentions it as a, oh, by the way, at the end of the solo rulebook, here's a little variant that lets you apply the solo rules to make a co-op game. And like, why didn't the game tell me this? Why? why? I went on Board Game Geek. And Board Game Geek, um, the, uh, let, me, let me confirm this. Let me not speak out of turn. Uh, let's come back to the browser. Uh, Oceania. Wingspan Oceania. Let's look at the mechanisms for Oceania. I believe we will find that under mechanisms, it says, nope, no co-op. No co-op. Let's fix that right now. Because that's ridiculous. Oh, not, I don't want to change the uh, description. Right, um, right. Let's go back. Let's go back. Okay. What am I looking at now? Where? Okay, here we are. Uh, right. I do not know where the edit button is when I'm zoomed in like that. But when I'm zoomed out, I know. There it is right there. Edit. Mechanisms. Uh, right. Not names. Not word names. Uh, publisher. No. Where's the mechanisms? There it is. Add a new mechanism. Cooperative game. Put in a description. A lot of people don't know this. But in the rule book, there, in the solo rule book that comes with this expansion there's and there's a variant that turns wingspan into a co-op game so in much the same way as arnak missing explorers and concordia solitaria this should be listed here on BGG. Smiley face, submit. All right, Jeff, 
in a small, tiny way, you've changed the world for the better. All right. But anyway, continuing on with Jeff's question. Basically, you and your opponent compete together against an Otama, which is operated using an Otama deck, uh, which is basically what you use in the, as your automated opponent for the solo game, which is... Uh, uh, plus a handful of other special rules that allow you and your teammates to share resources with each other. You all win if either one of you scores higher than the Otama or if the combined average of scores is higher. Have you tried this variant? What are your thoughts about it? I have not tried this variant because literally until yesterday, I had no idea this existed. Here's my thoughts. I am taking Wingspan Asia, the latest uh, version of the game, which is a standalone slash expansion, and I am taking whatever I need to from Oceania on the road, Jen and I are about to embark on an epic half-year-long road trip where we are driving, um, you know, south, south, south for the winter, and uh, having many adventures along the way. And I'll be taking games. And uh, Jeff, you just put wingspan. It's going to go in the RV. I am going to play this. Probably not for a few months, but I am so excited because I do. Why don't more games do this? As soon as a game has an Otama that allows for solo play, they are so freaking close. They are spitting distance away from being able to include a cooperative variant in their game as well. It just needs a little bit more work. And if I know Jamie Stegmeyer and the gang at Stonemeyer and Elizabeth Hardgrave, I expect they did the work and made this a fun and compelling. And I don't know if I'll ever play Wingspan as a competitive game again. I probably will never play Concordia as a competitive game again because the Solitaria co-op game is wonderful. Maybe. Same thing for Arnak as well. Maybe. I'm not sure. But, Jeff, my thoughts are, thank you so much for bringing this to my attention because I had no idea. Okay, then we go on to RetroCare. I don't know who you are, RetroCare. I'm just going to call you Ret. Ret says, uh, do you hold on to games that you just... Uh, do you hold on to games that you just don't want to part with? Maybe you know you'll play it sometime, but you have a hard time letting it go. I have a few games that I know I don't really need and just want to have it in case... Uh, I, I want to play it, if that makes sense. Yes, of course, Rhett. Yeah, that makes sense. Rhett, I am surrounded by 400 games. No human being in the history of humanity needs 400 board games. It's the, it's the dictionary definition of absurd, uh, um, you know, overage of, you know, you know, rampant consumerism, but I love them all. I don't want to get rid of a single one of these just shy of 400 games I've surrounded. And yeah, I, 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 I hold on to them, even though I never, ever, ever, or very rarely get a chance to play them, unless an expansion comes out that I need to cover. And then, yay, expansion, I get to pull. Um, I just, uh, I'm going to be playing Revive pretty soon, where the expansion just came out. And I just played Arnak again, because a new expansion came out. But otherwise, I never get to play these games again. But I hold on to all of them, because I hold on to hope that I will get to play them again, because as far as I'm concerned, these are the 387 greatest games in human history. That's not true. There are some games I've gotten rid of for other reasons, and if you want to know why, go to gone.rado.com where I catalog all the games I've gotten rid of. So yeah, of course. Uh, do I hold on to games I just don't want to part with? I mean, I don't need a single one of these games. Not a single one of them. At the end of the day, uh, if I just want to talk about pure efficiency, I and my wife both have smartphones. Chances are, of my personal top 100, at least, I would say, at anywhere from 30 to 50 of the games that are in my personal top 100... Yeah, no, no, no. Maybe, maybe at least 20 of the games in my personal top 100 have an app version that I could just play with my wife on my phone. And we could play it anywhere, on the road, on the couch, and get the same experience. It won't be the same experience, but at least be the same experience from a gameplay perspective. And we've done that sometimes. So I don't need any of them. But I wouldn't want to part with any of them either. Oh, man. The other day, we actually... 
uh, a wildfire came within about a half a mile of our house and we had to evacuate. The whole town uh, got evacuation warning. Very scary. And uh, man, you know, it happening gave me so much more of an appreciation for what's going on in Hawaii and elsewhere. And uh, yeah, we figured, okay, we, we, you know, it's not here yet, but we need to be out of here. We need to be gone. And so Jen and I, in less than an hour, packed up everything that we felt was the most important things in our lives. And uh, I had to make some tough choices here too. And uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, but I kept telling myself and I kept telling Jen, you know, it's not, we don't need any of these things. These are all just things. As long as we have each other and as long as we have the pups and as long as we've given the chickens an escape route, because we couldn't take them, but we made sure that, you know, if the fire actually did reach here, they'd be able to escape with their lives. That was the only thing that mattered. But uh, it was an interesting thought exercise, to say the least. So, yeah, yeah, I am surrounded by the very definition of games that I hold on to uh, solely because I don't want to part with them because I love them so much. Because I do. I love them all so much. Alrighty. And, oh, we've got one more question. One more question from Jeff, and it's going to require Jen. So hold on, folks. We'll be right back with her. Okay, folks, we are back. Jen is here. Hello. There she is. Oh, I need to turn on her little picture for people who are watching instead of listening. There she is. And uh, we've got one more gaming question uh, for Jen before we go into the personal section. And it is from Jeff. Honey Pie, generally, what makes you want to stop playing a given game? Oh, I think I tend to get frustrated if I don't feel like I'm making progress. Okay. So that would be it. And then you usually talk me through it. Oh, yes, look at all this stuff you've actually done, and it's okay, and you're getting there, and you're going to win anyway. Well, you are going to win. <laughs> yeah. You know. that, that was a little pep talk yeah. uh, compilation there. That, um, Yeah, so I think mainly it's that, as I feel like I'm just not getting enough done. Mm -hmm. Too many baby steps, not enough actual progress. Right. I mean, but there are games where you're fine with baby steps. Under what circumstances would you identify that, oh, yeah, look, it's just a bunch of small little turns... Are you trying to... I, am I supposed to think of a game? No, 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 no. Just okay. under what circumstances... Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, that does seem to be something we found more and more, that you'll quit because you're aboard of baby steps. So that's kind of separate from what you're saying. You don't feel like... I mean, you can feel like you're not making progress when we're taking huge uh, turns as well. Yeah. Um, I think... I think sometimes, too, another thing that, that turns me off is um, the kind of games that have... Uh, what do you call them? I think you call them broad or something. And they've got all of these, every little rule has its own exception. And then you have to go look up the what that rule means and sure. what this icon means. And I think something that slows the gameplay down significantly mm. because of the minutia that has to be addressed. Okay. That is another thing that makes me want to stop because, yeah, I've only got so much brain cells available. Right. <laughs> so don't waste them. See, I've often thought, I mean, I do everything I can to try and obfuscate that from you and just uh just oh look all you have to do is worry about the cards in your hand and don't worry about the rest of it i'll make sure everything's going smooth yep and i always feel like i'm actually doing you and the game a disservice because if you were more involved in those things and understood those complexities and those inner workings inner workings that you might appreciate the game more but maybe not i think i I do not have the bandwidth for a ton of minutia, especially mm -hmm. for a game we're only going to play a couple times. Right. I don't mind minutia on like Gloomhaven when I was really learning my character and stuff mm -hmm. because that I could remember from um, episode to episode and it was just part of the depth and um, c color of my character, I guess. Yeah. But on something that we're only going to play a few times, 
uh, you know, I, again, it's like how much brain power do I have to devote to this? Indeed. And okay. don't make me use up a whole bunch of it on this, all this minutia that only matters in this one particular case if I move on to this one particular spot with this one particular guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, oh, I just can't be bothered. <laughs> Honestly. Okay. It's well. like, uh, it's kind of, oh, fine, I'll just move in there. I, you know, I just cannot parse every possible um, potential thing. Right. Anything else? Hmm. Oh, sorry, you're She's to looking off into the sky, folks. Yes, I'm trying to remember. Um, I think uh, with co-op games, I don't. I tend to get discouraged if there's too much stuff that's been um, thrown at me. Too many bad guys, and I feel it's hopeless. Yeah, even though it never ever is. Well, that's what you always say. And then you walk away, and then I finish <laughs> it and win, almost without exception. Yes, but that's possibly due to your excellent playing. You're a better player than me, so. <laughs> I would have won by even more if you would have stayed, is the general case. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think, is there anything else that pops into your head about reasons I tend to want to stop playing? Um, hmm. Let's see. Are you, I mean, you can get demoralized when you feel like you've made a series of bad decisions. And you're like, ugh, I'm not going to pull myself. But that's just human nature. This happens to me, too. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh... No, I guess that's pretty pretty much it. Yeah. All right, Jeff. There you go. What did you say? Uh, Jeff didn't ask me. Oh, so, who um, cares? Well, apparently you just keep going anyway. I do. You yes, like I'm it. a professional. So that's it for game-related stuff, folks. And if you don't care about the personal, this is where you're getting off. Well, thanks for listening or watching. Have a nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye. But if you're ready for a bumpy ride, hang on. We're going to get into the personal stuff. Okay, folks, personal cues, personal A, starting as always with Andrus, because he's a regular questioner. And his name starts with an A. It does start with an A. Okay, so Andrus says, I didn't know Anchor, now Spotify podcast, was part of Spotify. A few years ago, Neil Young pulled his music from Spotify because of... Because on this platform, Mm -hmm. Joe Rogan spread lies and misinformation about COVID. And in general, personally, I consider Joe Rogan to be the Alex Jones light because of all the conspiracy theories he promotes, etc. What do did you think about Neil Young's move? And did you consider to part ways with Anchor Spotify because of the situation? I was aware of that, and I thought, good on you. I mean, because, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying Joe Rogan is a bad person, but yes, he can be a vessel for bad ideas getting out there. And... Uh, uh, yeah, it's it's not great. And the reality is, I'm not a uh, multi-platinum record, multi-millionaire uh, <laughs> like Neil Young. At the end of the day, I don't quite... I, I could have pulled, I could have gone to another platform. But the reality is, if, I, if I'm going to do that, I might as well pull myself off of YouTube as well. Right? Uh, Because YouTube fostered uh, Joe Rogan for years and allowed him and continues to put his stuff there too. And never mind, I mean, Joe Rogan is nothing compared to all the other platforms. At some point, I mean, yeah, I, I I could protest and hurt myself and make absolutely zero difference to the bottom line of these corporations that allow me to do what I'm doing. And it, 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 you know, it would only hurt me and it really wouldn't make much of a difference. So that was the decision I ultimately made because what, am I going to 
am I am I going to stop using all online platforms because they all uh, you know cr- put a megaphone to the mouths of some of the uh, you know most horrific ideas and ideologies out there. So what do I do? Do I just record myself with a with a video recorder and uh, you know burn DVDs and send those in the mail to everybody? <laughs> I mean, I, unless I'm gonna. But then, hey, uh, what what kind of labor went into the making of those uh, you know DVDs and you know the electronics? I mean, at some point, there's. I mean, you could take principled stands on everything, but then you'll just be living in a uh, in a in a tent in the woods that you had to make yourself um, from your from the uh, the wool from your own. Ch- you know, I, so ultimately, I've decided, yeah, good on you. And I, I know it wasn't just uh, Neil; there was a few other uh, relatively big artists that did the same. And I thought, geez, should I do this too? Um, whatever platform I would go on, there would be. They would also be platforming other stuff as well. And I just figured better to ensure that I up my chances of more people hearing me, which if I'm on Spotify, more people will hear me and hear a counter narrative. So that's ultimately where I ended up uh, settling. I assume you have nothing to say about that, honey pie. No, but I agree with your decision. All right. Uh, personal question for Rado, continuing with Andres. I have, uh, all right, I'm just going to read it verbatim. Switching the pronouns just messing me up. Andres says, you have told how corporations are bad because all they want is profit. Profit, in my humble opinion, isn't a bad thing. Lately, I'm much more frustrated with other motivations for corporations. And it's all about stock prices. And lately, stock prices don't care about profits. It's all about growth. I'm going to interrupt there to say it's the same thing. Um... Profit motive is why corporations chase growth, because growth leads to more profit. Um, all right. Nothing else matters. Pro- uh, continuing, Andres says, profit I associate with efficiency and sustainability. All right, I'll, I'll wait till the end. Uh, but lately, trends in stock prices about growth and getting new investors and using investors' money to grow further. Stock prices skyrocket, adding a few investors, adding new investors, et cetera, et cetera, until the bubble bursts. No hit of profits or efficiency or sustainability. Uh, this is how Nikola Motor Company, you probably never heard of, total sales of the company's history, 50 million in mid 2020, were more valuable than Ford Motor Company annual profits of billions. Is profit really that bad? Well, sure. The way you define profit, Andrews, that sounds perfectly reasonable. But that is not the way the rest of the world defines profit. Profit is, at the end of the day, putting money in your pocket. Uh, you know, uh, you know, making more, uh, bringing more in than you take out. And at the end of the day, ridiculous, dangerous, uh, irresponsible, unsustained growth puts more and 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 more money into the pockets of the of the upper echelon. And yes, I, I, you're right. I do not know the Nikola Motor Company. It sounds like a very, very interesting uh, uh, study where you're saying, oh no, a very old school approach where, oh yeah, well, we, we, we make a decent profit, but at the end of the day, we are want to be more fiscally responsible. You appreciate fiscal responsibility, which is nothing to do necessarily with profit um, when you've got corporations and CEOs and uh, you know shareholders who demand uh, you know we want our capital because it's really capital you know the the accumulation of that wealth and holding on to it that is the determining factor it's what drives capitalism it's where profit is deemed I mean 
your version of profit, you're looking at a different, more utopian ideal that is not the reality of what our system is set up to reward. So at the end of the day, when I say I'm against profit, I'm against everything you're saying you're against because that is the common modern day view of how to maximize profit at all, at any cost, at any cost. All, all ex you know, every ex expense yeah. is... Yeah. is Justified. Yes, I mean, yeah, no matter what it takes, you know, whatever it costs the world, whatever it costs the environment, whatever it costs labor, whatever it costs anything, push that growth because that leads to more profit for us and more and more and more and more and more and more pools at the top until you end up where we are now on the uh, brink of civil war with uh, people wanting to go to war with each other over stuff that's not the real core problem. Income inequality is the is. Well, there's lots of problems, but uh, uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah, profit is bad because the uh, the unbridled, naked, avarice pursuit of profit at any cost, uh, which is what you're complaining about, is what I'm complaining about too. Um, yeah, it used to be that corporations and, and companies would take care of their people and they would reinvest in their people. They would, you know, train them. They would give them, yes. say, housing and um, maybe even the company store. And I'm not saying, I mean, like the coal miners obviously had it really bad. Yeah, but that's a bad uh, company store. That's, that's certainly, yeah, that was um, awful. But but I think about like, wasn't it Kellogg maybe who started and had a village near? And, and people, I know there's been a couple of them in England as well that were... Uh, towns and cities that were there specifically to house the people that were working at these new um, industrial uh -huh. uh, companies. But there was more of a sense, I think, in the 50s and before about how the company had a responsibility towards its workers. And, uh, yeah. and that's absolutely absent today. Well, in part, that's used because there used to be a lot more regulations. Yeah. Um, that were pretty much started getting wiped out with the rise of neoliberalism uh, and Reagan and Thatcher in the 80s. And that's led to where we are now. And we, what I've often said is, yeah, capitalism is a real problem. It's a cancer on humanity, but that's unregulated capitalism. Capitalism can be regulated and tamed and pushed into a direction that floats all boats. And uh, all that stuff started going away in the 80s. And it hasn't come back, although there are certainly people who are trying, and that's where we need to get back to. And we're a long ways away from that, unfortunately. And uh, we're just seeing history repeat itself. The last time this kind of rampant inequality happened in the Western world led to the French Revolution and uh, poor Marie Antoinette not having her cake and eating it. Um, well, that was her saying that people should have their cake and eat it too. And I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but there are steps that can be taken. We have systematically, over the last 30 years, dismantled all of the safeguards that had been put in place after the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. um, what do you know? There was another huge uh, rich getting richer. And okay, let's put all this under control. And then we had rampant, unbroken um, societal growth, yep. not individual growth, for a half a decade until uh, the rich said, you know what, we could be a lot richer. Half if we, Yeah, half century, what I say? Half decade? Yeah. yeah. Uh, we could be a lot richer if we got rid of all these things that keep ensuring that income gets distributed and doesn't let us pool it all at the top. And uh, yeah, here's where we are again. And uh, time is a flat circle, and we'll see what happens as time goes on. Uh, Anders then changes subjects. Imagine one day you were to wake up in the Middle Ages, 14th century in Europe, and you're stuck there. What would you do? Uh, would you try to change something in history, society, economics, etc., is probably the smartest person alive? 
Boy, that's an example. In the last episode of the podcast, you talked about ChatGPT teaching me everything about electricity. Or, yeah, would you be able to invent electricity in the 14th century? I don't think I could do it. Or would it all be about survival? Well, first of all, the biggest problem is, you know, even if... Uh, I end up in England, where the uh, language is probably... I probably still won't understand a thing anybody says, <laughs> because our, our modern English is so far removed. It's fascinating. There are so many videos you can find on YouTube of what, what did people sound like in 14th century England. And if you listen really hard, you can... And if you know what they're saying, you can say, okay, I can kind of work that backwards. So that's going to be my first problem, is that no one will be able to understand me. I won't be able to understand anybody. And I'm certainly no linguist of... Um, you know, ancient languages. So that's going to be the per first hurdle. But once you get over that, yeah, it is a sad state of affairs that I would love to be able to go back and reinvent the internal combustion engine. I, I understand the basic principle. Forget about microchips or, you know, I mean, I understand the basics of electricity that, you know, ions move from one to another. I, I have a law, very rudimentary understand of all this stuff. Probably not enough for me to actually turn that into actual items because I'm not an engineer and that's what I would need to be. Uh, and when you say I'd be the smartest person alive, I'd maybe have a greater font of knowledge about a wide range of things than anybody else on the planet, but I would not have the skills or the aptitude, quite frankly, to turn that into. So there, make no mistake, there would be people in the 14th century who are much smarter than me, who do have that, uh, you know, that quirk of their brain chemistry that allows them, you know, I mean, I understand how things work on a certain level, but I don't understand how to turn that into making something that works. I would have to team up with somebody like that. I would have to find somebody like that. <clears throat> maybe you could actually just work with people to, to tweak things a little bit. So like maybe hemp would become what cotton is now mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and paper for trees that well, we could hemp use was I, mean, I know but you could you could work on not allowing the well, other forces I'd have to, to skip play. ahead a few centuries uh, basically when you could start planting seeds mm, in the yeah. 14th century well no, I mean no, I mean hemp hemp rope and hemp clothing were incredibly common it's it wasn't until I believe the early 20th century that it was a right-wing political agenda yeah. to demonize uh, basically Mexico that um, yeah be, be, because hemp was re, was renamed no marijuana is a relatively new word that was literally come up with to scare voters and saying, oh, uh, you know, those people south of the border, they're dangerous. They're trying to infect young minds with their marijuana because that's a scary sounding word. And, you know, for centuries, hemp, which is literally a miracle fiber, yeah. um, was, you know, the backbone of so much. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and there, was a, there was a lot of things. Oh, oh that's right. It was, it was the cotton industry. That's what it was. I kind of had it wrong in my head. It was the cotton industry that, hey... This hemp thing is superior to our product in every way, <laughs> but how can we demonize it uh, so that we can, you know, become the dominant fiber in the world? And so they came up with this anti, uh, you know, south of the border campaign and renamed it marijuana, and it kind of sounded scary. And there were editorials and all that. I don't know if there's much I could do in the 14th century to counteract that. I'd have to be there at the time. Um, but I'd have to have a bigger megaphone than the uh, huge industrial interests that are doing whatever they can to chase profit above mm -hmm. all else, yep. including societal welfare. Right, and all the slavery and everything that happened because oh, of, of course. cotton and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, oh, there's a few things that you could change. And maybe even if you could steer people away from using petroleum. Uh, yeah. But again, I, I just... I, 
I, I understand the outcome, but I'd just be one more crazy raving person on a soapbox on the corner saying, you don't understand. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, again, vested powers that be uh, are chasing after profit no matter what. They always will. They always have until we get to a post-scarcity society, until we get to a time when money doesn't mean anything because all resources are effectively free because the cost of production through automation and AI has basically rendered everything basically infinite amounts of energy, infinite amount of water, infinite amount of food. That's why I'm so hot for cultured meat. Because once we can mass produce meat in, uh, you know, mass produce skyscraper full labs that just do nothing but, you know, culture meat over and over and over again, and then we don't have slaughter animals, and we don't have to ruin the um, the ecology with, uh, you know, I mean, farming practices too. I mean, you know, horrific stuff is done in the name of fruit and veg as well that hurts the world, Um, and. All the pesticides we, and fertilizers and chemicals. Yeah, all that stuff. So when we get to the point where, hey, t- I mean, technology will push us out of this, but it's going to take a while, and it's going to take a long time for adoption. Every time I see, uh, you know, what do you call them, polls, interest polls, uh, where people say, oh, 80% would, like, would, would spit out of meat that tastes delicious if they realized it was in a lab instead of off the back of a cow that, you know, basically farted us to doomsday. Or burped us to doomsday, more likely. So there, there's a lot of work to be done, but um, that's really the only cure to you know this fundamental human drive of as long as things are zero sum. Everything I take, er, everything I deny you is more for me, and that means I survive because we're just talking again about lizard brain drives. We have to completely divorce ourselves. Uh, you know, as soon as everybody, just from the day they're born lives a life where everything they want and need is available to them at no cost, that's when our human brains will will fundamentally change. Um, and until then, we just got to keep working towards that and uh, look for fairness and equality wherever we can. Um, but anyway, that's far away. Honestly, if I were finally found myself in the 14th century, I'd probably be dead within a year. Is the reality of it. Uh, because I wouldn't know the language. I would not know the mores, the customs. I, I just I wouldn't know how to make a living for myself. Uh, and all of my knowledge, which is largely academic. I mean, I guess maybe if I could find academia. Maybe that would be the course. Find myself... You could uh, be the king's advisor or something. Maybe, but I mean, I'm just some random dude. Uh, I, that's the problem. I know a lot of little things. And uh, a lot of them are wrong, probably, quite frankly. Heck, I've probably said a few things wrong in this very podcast, more than likely. <laughs> I, I wouldn't, I, I'm, I could certainly be stand to be corrected. But none of that translates into actual practical application. So I'd have to find somebody. I'd have to go hang out at universities um, or, I guess, in the 14th century monasteries and say, look, look, I, I can't explain how I know it, but I know things. And if you know how to make things work, we can actually, you know, push things forward. Um, I think I'd be fine because I know how to grow stuff. Uh, that's true. Yeah, Jen has a lot more practical day-to-day knowledge than I do. Although you, a lot of what you do relies on the conveniences of the world we live in today. Of course. Um, yes. You don't know how to do it with... I mean, I mean, yeah, I know how to feed chickens too, but we do we know that because we know how to go out and buy chicken food at the store <laughs> yeah. that is mass-produced. I know how to save seeds and plant seeds yeah. and yep. nourish them. Yeah. Um, so it's an interesting thought exercise. And like I said, I'd be dead within a year, 
more than likely. Well, you might be burned at the stake or something as a The heretic, a too, talking about all these crazy things. That's yep. a good point. Yeah. All righty. You have anything more to say on that one? <clears throat> nope. Nope. I'd like you to go back and change the hemp thing, though, for mm, sure. Yes. Uh, and like I said, that's an example. I mean, I, I read about this stuff years ago, and I'm just trying to pull, you know, random synapses firing again for the first time in years. So I'm probably getting some of those things wrong and conflating one thing with another. But anyway. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry Bahamas. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Daniel says, Pop culture time. Number one, can I do my AI magic on this particular YouTube video? Uh, it's, which is about the state of video games. And tell me what you think. Feel free to skip if you're not up to it. I pre-baked this, Daniel. I did my... Actually, I started watching this video. And even though it was only 20 minutes long, and I was watching at double speed, so I should have been able to finish it in 10 minutes, I could only watch for five minutes before I just tuned out because, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, no offense to the guy. Um, he's just complaining about the stuff that people have been complaining about ever since I've been in the video game industry. As long as there have been public forums to complain about video games, <laughs> it's the same old thing. But I did go on ahead and pull a transcript of that, ran it through an AI thing, and uh, let's see, I've got it on screen right now. Here are the takeaways. Uh, Daniel, in case you're curious, because you've watched the video and you could uh, double check it and see how well did AI do. AAA game development budgets have gotten extremely expensive, making it difficult for big uh, studios to take risks and innovate. Yeah, sure. That was true when I was uh, 20 years ago, when I started in the industry. I'm sure if the internet existed, that people would have ta been complaining about that in the Atari 2600 in the early 80s. It's, that's, you know, and that applies towards movie studios and television production. I'm sure that applies towards big books. It applies towards any creative endeavor where a lot of people come together to try to create a product. There's nothing new there. The more you're willing to spend, the more mouths you have to feed, the more careful you have to be, the more responsible you have to be, and make creative choices that maximize your chance. Well, getting back to what we were talking about earlier, they maximize your chances towards profit, but before then, maximize your chances for just not going out of business. And at the end of the day, uh, you, Daniel, you're a video game player. You're trying to decide what game do you want to buy. Um, you could buy the game. Oh, this is equal to a game I really loved. I know I'm going to enjoy this. It costs 50 bucks. Oh, this is a game I've never heard of that promises a completely new experience that I may or may not like. It costs 50 bucks. What's the smart choice for you as the consumer to make in that circumstance? If, you're, if 50 bucks matters to you, you're probably better off going for Grand Theft Auto 15 than, you know, Purple Nurple Leader. Uh, even if Purple Nurple Leader promises to reinvent your a vision of what a video game could even be. So, yeah, that's just fundamental 
smart decision on your choice to take the safe bet. Therefore, the publishers that are, have millions, nowadays getting close to billions on the line, it's the smart choice for them too. That's not to say that um, executives don't understand that, oh yeah, uh, innovating and coming up with new ideas and, and fresh spins on things is, cr- is absolutely crucial to our bottom line. And the reality is, this particular story... I mean, just going on and on and on about how uh, there's no innovation. Why can't things be more like Baldur's Gate 3? Hi, did you notice the title of what you said? Three. That means it's a freaking sequel that you're championing as this great example of, oh, yeah, look, smaller independent studios can come up with new things. Yeah, well, they're making a freaking sequel to Baldur's Gate, which is one of the most highly, widely respected and highly regarded RPGs of all time. And all they're doing is just revisiting old ideas and putting a new layer of polish on them. So even the examples of look at how... Anyway, uh, bullet number two. Huge successful games like Dota, League of Legends, Counter-Strike started as indie mod projects being uh, picked up by larger studios. Original ideas often come from smaller teams. Yeah, again, there's nothing new there. Um, I would uh, hasten to add, go check out the film industry. For um, pretty much the majority of the film industry, 80-90% of all feature films that end up in the cinema are taken from books that were successful because they sound, oh, that book succeeded. It was done by a very small group of people, almost an independent development mindset. It was successful. Uh, Hollywood executives say, let's turn that into a movie because there's proven um, traction for those ideas. Uh, Again, look at the stats. The vast majority of Hollywood feature films are adapted from previous works. It's very, very rare to have completely new original stuff. Never mind the fact that even the completely new original stuff is inspired by, um, if not ripping off, original stuff. So yeah, of course, That's going to be the case in the video game industry, too. Uh, Corporatization and secrecy in big game studios hurts creativity and collaboration. Indie developers tend to be more open to testing, feedback, and networking. Indie developers have less skin in the game. It's just a few people. um, If they're truly indie, they've still got day jobs, and they're just pursuing this as a passionate side project. I know some of the best people I ever hired were people who, uh, you know, basically were doing small independent productions because of their passion for it, and they came on, and they did great things within the system with me because I was a creature of the system too. So um, these are just factual statements that are couched as complaints when in fact, no, it's just kind of the nature of the industry because it has to be that way because, well, we're not in a post-scarcity society where people do things solely for uh, artistic expression and creative fulfillment. As soon as you put a profit motive into what should be at its heart, all about creative expression and personal fulfillment, All these things come out to one level or another. And I guarantee you, um, it's very, very rare that there won't be indie projects that don't put a thing or two in their game because they think it will up their... Because, I mean, at the end of the day, what does it mean to sell out and, you know, put in uh, stuff that people want to play? You you put in... I mean, they they mentioned exploding barrels because kids love exploding barrels. Yeah, because it's satisfying to punch a thing and see it and make a sound happen. It's just a a very simple... And and to complain about, well, how dare they put exploding barrels in games because kids love them. There's a reason they love them. Why not give kids what they love? It was a bunch of old men grousing on on a... And that's why I just had to stop. I mean, no offense to Cliff. And it's interesting, Arcane Wonders, man, I'd love to... Cliff, I'd love to talk with, but I'd really like to talk to the Arcane Wonders guy because he and we at Splash Damage were both under the umbrella of Bethesda at the time. And 
we, I'm sure we'd have stories to tell. AAA studios are often just chasing trends and afraid to try new things. They take too long to develop games and can't keep up with uh, changing player tastes. Um, tastes don't change. People want what they already know they like is the reality of it. Um, yeah, there, there are new things. There, there's, uh, you know, occasionally... A few times in a generation, there's the occasional game that is truly, fundamentally industry-shaking. Um, and then others, you know, piggyback on that. You know, Grand Theft Auto was one of those things. Not that it was the first open-world, do-anything-you-want game. I mean, that we'd had that since Starflight and even before then. But it fundamentally, uh, you know, rocked the industry to the core. There's a few games like that, but very, very few and far between. Most of these indie things were saying, oh my gosh, why can't all games be like these? Nobody wants those games. Those games never or very, very, very rarely break through. I, another way to liken it is to think about, again, think about Hollywood. There are... Millions of people trying to make films, trying to say, I am going to bunk the trends and not do what all the corporate sellout studios do, and I'm going to make these things, and 99.9% of those things are stuff that nobody wants to watch other than the people who made them. And that's fine. I'm glad they had their creative expression, and hopefully they find some audience for it. But very, very few things break out. In this video, they talked to me, I, in the part I got to, well, yeah, I mean, nobody could predict Minecraft. Minecraft is a once-in-a-lifetime phenomenon. To say that, oh, yeah, you know what every indie group out there has their own Minecraft that isn't that is failing only because the corporate overlords are keeping them down is ridiculous and out of touch with reality. The reality is um, the vast majority of indie games you'd look at them and say, uh, "Let's just fire up Call of Duty again." Um, you know. And that's not to say that they aren't per coming up with really cool, original, innovative ideas. But um, you know, but then we get back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, where's the line? Are we pursuing profit? Are we pursuing? And it's it's the world we have made for ourselves, and this is just an outcome of it. Indie double A and smaller studios are more likely to drive innovation in games. Larian with Baldur's Gate three is setting new standards to scare some triple A studios. And there you go again. Um, oh, it takes a sequel to a long-standing uh, game that just you know tweaks and comes up with new ideas within that to be innovative. That's not innovative. That uh, you know a three in a series is not implicitly innovative, and yet it's looked to because there's a fundamental breakdown in this old man on lawn come or on get off my porch uh, video, which is what this mostly was. Uh, video, the video overall argues that AAA gaming companies will struggle to create exciting new IP instead relying on sequels, nostalgia, and monetization mo models like battle passes. But Indie will continue to thrive. Indie doesn't thrive. Um, not in the same way. The amount of money Indie games makes pales in comparison to corporate. Uh, you know, If you want to talk about thriving, i.e. profit, at the end of the day, the vast majority of Indie games go nowhere, make no money. A few of them stand out. Whereas, when you're working about a corporate system, they're there to make money on every game, no matter what. And they successfully do this because of the choices they make. Because the audience has said very clearly, this is what we will give you money for. So this is just, um, you know, hitting a niche that you want. And again, it's not going to change. Now, I will say, uh, it's interesting, you know, there's this, uh, there, that um, there, there is a change coming. It's a fundamentally huge seismic change, and it's AI. 30 years from now, AAA game development will not exist because at the end of the day, anybody using AI tools will be able to make a game 
on their own or just a small little indie group of people with very little in the way of technical skills, quite frankly, be able to make a game that rivals Grand Theft Auto 4 because they'll be able to, it'll just be a pure conduit of their imagination and the AI will do everything for them. That is the reality of what's coming in the future. Um, everything will be indie uh, because... And, you know, and that's not just video games that's going to happen to. That's going to—it's AI is going to be so fundamentally transformational to the human experience. It cannot be understated, and this is just one um, side effect of it. So those are some observations uh, from that old man getting shouting "Get off my lawn!" from his porch video that you linked to. And uh, maybe I'm not being fair. I probably could have spent a bit more time watching it. But again, I, I just found it frustrating because everything that Cliff and the Arcane Wonders guy and the were, were complaining about were like, yeah, people have been complaining about that as long as I've been in the video game industry. Not, nothing changed. Time again is a flat circle. I assume you have nothing to say about that, Honey Pie. You're just uh, keeping up with the fires, aren't you? I yep, bet you. Yep. I am. We just very narrowly avoided our house burning down uh, earlier this week. The fire, the raging wildfire, got to within a half a mile of our house, and fortunately, the uh, fire fighters got it under control, and we were able to move back in because we evacuated. That was fun. I'm trying to figure out what, uh, you know, what to take with us, what to leave behind, um, and we are yeah. so fortunate. Unlike the people in uh, Hawaii, or I mean, man, I mean, Jen has now gotten addicted to this app that well. we found that tracks fires because there's some fires up where you, some of your friends yeah. in eastern Washington, they're close to losing. They're because close, that's yeah. the new normal. That's our world now. If this does not change people's opinions on it won't. climate it won't. change. They'll, they'll, they'll keep saying, there's always been fire. Been We've like had this. fire since the dawn of mankind. There's nothing new here. We're not responsible for this. How about a whole, the thing, the Hillary in California? The hurricane oh, the Hillary. Hurricane Hillary? Yeah. Ah! That's never happened in California. It's it's amazing. After a spring of record rains and floods. If there's one thing humanity is really, really bad at, it's saying, you're right, I made a mistake. <laughs> yeah, I, let's been, fix this. Uh, yeah. Let's fix it. Um, anyway. ASAP. Sorry. Uh, that is getting very far away from Daniel's uh, things. His number two is about sports. Oh. What are my thoughts on Nikola Jokic? If you're not totally familiar, he's a player who thinks of basketball as a job. He doesn't care about Denver, the national team, rivalries, the ring, the ring. any of that. Uh, when he's done playing basketball, okay, when he's done with work, he just wants to go home and play with his horses. <laughs> Good on him, I guess. I, I don't know who he is. I, I'm sure he's not alone in that regard. That seems like a relatively healthy attitude to take, quite frankly, um, when it boils right down to it. I imagine if somehow I found myself as a super sports star, that would be my attitude as well. Um, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I, Sorry, don't okay. know. Yeah, and Jen has something. But it, it, congratulations, Nicola. All right, then we get into politics uh, from Daniel. Daniel says, one, when you said my side, uh, you were mistaken. I'm a liberal leftist, and I've been like that since I was of legal age to drive. If I remember correctly, when Jen did her political compass, we were both in the middle of libertarian left. I was one square up, two squares right. Uh, so if I'm conservative, so is Jen. Uh, so there is your side and their side, not my side. My apologies, Daniel. I'm just, I mean, I don't know you, man. I'm just going based on the kind of things you say and the questions you ask. Let's see what they are this time. And also, as I recall, didn't we totally screw that test we up? We did because we were looking at the sample. Oh, we, yeah. Well, no matter what. I mean, yeah, I, I think, remember, our, we we did it and then we were looking at the wrong thing. and we It was were, the sample that they yeah. put on, like, the header yeah. of the thing or something. And we're like, wow, we're literally the exact same. Yeah, I remember that. that <laughs> Gosh, was we're really, so close. Yes. Which you were surprised at. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
That being said, I've seen clips, debates, interviews from well-known Americans, congressmen, celebrities, writers like Robert D'Angelo, Ibram uh, X. Uh, Kendi, who have claimed that white people are inherently racist. Here's a link to a CNN article. It took me five seconds to find it, and it's an interview with Robin D'Angelo uh, about white fragility. It says so in the first paragraph. This is the core tenet of your ideology. Everything stems from it. Uh, by you, you mean me. So, either I misunderstood everything I've seen or read, or it's not one side lies more. It's both sides lie equally. The same especially uh, goes for fear-mongering. I've seen horrible fear-mongering from political genders of both sides. So, you are using this as an example of a lie, I guess, right? Well, I'm probably going to flip the script on you and say, no, uh, I have not read this. I looked at this article very briefly. Let's go ahead and open it again. Um, because I looked at it and my immediate thought was, yes, there's nothing controversial about this at all. Uh, how white fragility supports racism and how whites can stop it. If you're a white person in America, social justice educator Robin D'Angelo has a message for you. You're racist, pure and simple, without a lifetime of conscious effort, you will always be. You just can't help it, you see? Because you've been swallowed in a cocoon of white privilege since you came sputtering out of your mother's womb, protesting the indignity of it all. Uh, you may be indignantly sputtering right now, the insult to humanity. How can you be racist? You, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, first of all, this goes beyond clickbait title to clickbait opening, um, you know, third of the article. But the article itself is right because here is an ugly truth and there's nothing that's inconsistent with what you've heard me say a million times before on this podcast, Daniel. Yes, humanity is implicitly racist. I have talked in the past about how they have done um, studies and tests with babies to prove that babies come out of the womb literally racist. That given the option, babies will make eye contact and move towards others of their same color as opposed to different color, all other things being equal. Um, because, say it with me, we're a tribal species. We always look for commonality and we look for ways to others. And as stupid and meaningless as it is, skin color is a really judge a book by its color, by its cover, easy way to go about categorizing people into like me, not like me, in my tribe, not in my tribe. I have talked on more than one episode about how one of the most impactful moments in cinema history for me was the Samuel L. Jackson's speech from, I can't remember the name of it now, it's based on a John Grisham novel, I've mentioned it in the past, he's in a jail cell talking to Matthew McConaughey, you can find this video on YouTube, and um, he's trying to tell his liberal white lawyer, trying to explain the world from his perspective, and um, said, no, you don't see me as a man, you see me as a black man. And in the theater, I was floored. And just knocked out of my seat because I couldn't deny the fact that I see that too. And I do my best to overcome it. I do my best. But anybody, black, white, whatever their color, who says, I don't see color, I, um, you know, is, is telling a lie to themselves. Because we can't get that because it's hardwired into our monkey brains. And the article you're pointing out is how, look, let's acknowledge this fundamental human facet of all of our psychology and then try to overcome it because that's what we need to do every day in every way. So there's no, there, this article is not a lie. I'm a racist. You're a racist. Barack Obama is a racist. We all can't help it on some level, but we can be better than our lizard brains allow us to be. And that's what this article is about. So... Uh, I, I think it's kind of went in a different direction than what you were expecting. 
Uh, but it's it's certainly not a fear-mongering thing. But anyway, related to number one, what are my thoughts on, unless you have anything to add to that, honey pie? Well, I think I've told this story before. Yes. But um, I didn't ever think I was racist. Mm-hmm. Um, we moved to England. Yeah. And the first black person that I happened upon, uh, I don't even remember how long we were there, but anyway, yeah. he spoke with a British accent. And it so blew my mind uh, because it was just not what I was expecting, right. that it instantly brought into focus what I was expecting. Exactly. And you didn't have that experience anytime you talk to a white person speaking with a British accent. Exactly. Yeah. No. So, I mean, it just really called into question everything that I, that, you know, I was expecting a black person to be and he mm-hmm. wasn't. And of course, and, and I didn't even realize I had all those expectations. Yeah. And until... it was unfair of you to put that on him. Oh, that absolutely. was entirely what you were carrying around with a lifetime of experiences and brain chemistry that predisposed you to categorizing people based on whatever you can categorize them on, whether it's left or right, black or white, country fan, rock fan, mm-hmm. what, you know, uh, uh, you know, Knicks fan or Lakers fan, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, we all find ways to say, oh, well, you're different than me. And um, yeah, it's, it's something we have to work on. And that's what this article is about. And the sooner we can all acknowledge that and say, well, look, just because that's where my brain chemistry pushes me doesn't mean that I can't do better. That I, you know, and that's uh, that. Uh, this article calls out. You know what? The sooner everybody acknowledges that, the be- the sooner we can start moving forward. So that's a good article. Uh, I, I, you know, maybe go back and reread it, Daniel, from that through that lens. Uh, but anyway, because yeah. When when if, if I, when I say you're racist, Daniel, I'm not saying you're you know a Ku Klux Klan member actually out trying to destroy Black Lives, but it's unavoidable that your brain and it's it's not your fault. You were this way as a baby too, uh, as was I, as is everybody. Um, you know, black babies tend to go towards black um, you know random strangers as opposed to white. It's it's statistically proven. So. Yeah, uh, this is not a fear-mongering article at all. This is an article actually trying to tell the truth. I will grant you in a bit of a clickbaity way, and I was probably a bit clickbaity myself in this particular response, but uh, and that's not necessarily helping anything. But yeah, number uh, number two, really number one. What are my thoughts on Anna Kafarian from the Young Turks admitting she was spreading disinformation and controversial news like Kyle Rittenhouse and others? It was an interview uh, which is on YouTube, so no getting out uh, with your side lies. yeah, here's the deal. I, I did not. I'm I'm aware of this. I I, I know the art the interview you're talking about. I watched a little bit of it, but almost immediately, almost immediately, Anna went to. There was a news story, Honey Pie, from a right wing rag out of England saying you'll get a kick out of this that the 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 woke left has gotten so out of control that they um are now uh you know. Uh, Alex just started making some noise, that they're now trying to get women's vaginas renamed bonus holes. <laughs> and Anna what? Kasparian um, parroted that right-wing talking point completely straight-faced, completely ignoring all the context around that. Now, what really happened, that, you know, this is a fundamental right-wing skew uh, that only, that, you know, you would think only right-wingers would fall for. The reality is there was a charitable organization that is working um, for, uh, you know, sexual health and well-being and, you know, trying to work with outreach members of the community. I think trying to do STD testing. I forget exactly what it was, but something like that. Okay. And they had a pamphlet for all their volunteers, Right, who 
volunteer to sign up to work the booth in the weekend to help people. You know, uh, you know, if it, if it was, it might not have been STD testing, it might have been something else, but it's something in that realm. Mm. And in the back, they had an appendix of slang terms. And one of the slang terms was, well, if you're interacting with uh, transgendered men, i.e., you know, people born women who have transitioned to being men, mm. um, that one of the slang terms that transgendered men you might encounter them saying, oh, well, you know, I haven't checked out my bonus hole. Um, because it's a silly slang term that they just wanted their volunteers to be prepared for. And that was completely misappropriated information taken completely out of context and repackaged by the right in uh, the UK as, look at these uh, liberals saying women's vaginas should be referred to as bonus holes. None of that happened. And as soon as I heard Anna uh, uh, Kasparian parroting that, completely misrepresenting the truth of it, I'm like, oh, well, I can see what direction she's going, and that's too bad. That is way too bad. But I've never really watched The Young Turks very much, Um, so I I can't really say that much about it. Uh, But that's the one little bit of, that's, that's my feedback, is that if she got that, and it's so simple, just like the tiniest bit of extra bit of research, just do a, you know, a fact check on it, and you'll immediately find out, this is the truth, this is the lie that's being spread, and Anna chose to believe the lie and spread it to however many, you know, hundreds of thousands of people watch that particular podcast, and she is allowing herself to rethink her overall world position based on such an easily disproportionate proven lie that she has now become a vessel for. So, yeah, she's she's going in the wrong... What are my thoughts? My thoughts are, if that's emblematic of whatever else she's saying, then she's taking a wrong turn, quite frankly. And I'm not saying a wrong turn because of, you know, ideological differences, but because she is believing lies and spreading them as truths. And that's not good. Alrighty. Uh, three. If I were to see evidence from sources I trust and uh, to my full satisfaction that my political stance is actually increasing homophobia, transphobia, racism, instead of diminishing it, would I change or amend my stance? Yeah, sure. Of course. I do not want to increase homophobia, transphobia, or racism. Yeah. Why would I want to do that? Um, uh, this is a thought experiment answer. Is that's not possible. The opposite was already proven, aka dodging the question or not. No, of course. If you could prove to me so I look forward to hearing next month when you prove to me that my personal stance is creating more homophobia, transforming, and racism in the world. Uh, give me the stats. But bear in mind, I will do the bare bones minimum to do even the simplest of Google search to find out, oh no, that's a right-wing talking point that you're spreading. Because that's the thing, man. I appreciate you say you're left, but you come here month after month after month parroting all kinds of right-wing talking points like this thing with Anna Kasparian. So... Forgive me if I misunderstood your own political ideology leanings. All right. Anything more to say on that? Are you ready to move on to Eric Honey Pie? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Eric says, in the last podcast, you mentioned in passing you grew up on a boat. I know you lived in Malta. Please share more about your childhood on a boat, where, why, etc., and how you ended up in a castle in Malta. Seems like your life story would be very interesting. Well, first of all, the two have nothing to do with each other. Um, I, my dad, in the 70s, read some books 
that put it in his head that his life goal should be to build his own uh, with his own bare hand his own bare hands a 42 foot steel hull sailboat and then sail it around the world because he read some you know basically adventure books about people who had done this and he was inspired to do it and from the time I was four to the time I was nine, probably about five years, it spent him teaching himself how to weld, how to do everything to be able to build a 42-foot steel hull sailboat called the Whatever was the title, <laughs> was, the, was the, the name of the ship. <laughs> we eventually put it in the ocean, and then for the next, or not the ocean, we, 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 we were on the open ocean, but we mostly stayed in freshwater. We spent five years living on that boat, so from nine to 14. And I might be off a bit here, and unfortunately... There's nobody in living memory besides me who even knows this. My dad is gone. My mother is gone. My brother is gone. Uh, my All my aunts and uncles are gone. I'm the last one. I do have one aunt, but she's uh, you know getting very much into dementia territory. So I might have some of these things wrong because my memory is only so-so. But uh, yeah, for around five years of you know formative, formative time, I lived on a boat with my mom, my dad, my brother. We were homeschooled by my mom. Uh, we had a gigantic German shepherd named Boatnik. We had a cute little Lhasa Apso named Wiggles. Wiggles! Wiggles! Wigs! And uh, yeah, we, we never really been very far because we never actually... You know, I mean, life got in the way. We moved on. We were basically, we were kind of like nomad, homeless or we, we, right, that's you not were, true. We, we moved from, yeah, we were, we, we lived on a boat. We had our home and we moved that from, the boho. we were bohos. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, we were moving from Marina to Marina. You know, my dad still worked at AT&T full time and there was, we never quite got it finished. It was always, you know, Hey, it takes 95 or what, what's the thing? It takes 5% of the production to do 95% of the work, and then the other 95 to do that last 5%. Oh, you know, yeah. that kind I'm getting the numbers I wrong. Think it's 80 20, but. Yeah, whatever it is, the 80 20 rule, that was 100% because we got it to, you know, in five years, he got it to where we could live on it. But then in five more years, we never actually got it seaworthy. We never actually finished the sales um, and all of that. And eventually, um, my as I understand it, Family lore is my dad went and stayed at his brother's, my uncle's house, and it was in the middle of a huge storm. And uh, he came back the next day and said, you know what? I think we're done with this boat because I slept through that storm and slept like a baby. Couldn't hear the rain at all. <laughs> Whereas if uh, on our boat, if I mean, nobody's sleeping that night and the whole thing is rocking. And it's like, oh, life is so much easier not living on a boat. And so he decided we're done with this. And then we moved back. And Yeah, did you say it was a steel hull boat? It was a steel hull sailboat, yeah, yes. Yeah, so it was all metal. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ting, 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 ting. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, um, I don't know if that's true, but that's, uh, I remember somebody telling me that as a kid, that that's why we were leaving the boat. Uh, so, and then I, I, I got a late start. I became a very, I was after five years of having no friends from nine to 14, I was a very quiet, shy, introverted, uh, kid who basically spent all that time just reading. I mean, all I did was, uh, you know, program on my TI-994A and read my parents' books because that's all I had. I didn't have any friends. Uh, and uh, swimming, a lot of swimming with my brother, Ryan. And uh, so I was reading Catch-22 and, um, you know, uh, Sometimes a Great Notion. I remember reading that. And uh, The Grapes of Wrath, they, they actually had a whole bunch of Steinbeck novels. That's what I was doing from 9 to 14, was just reading those books because those were what my parents had, learning how to program and becoming a shy, quiet introvert, which is still who I think of myself today. Uh, and then I was a, I, I got back into school when we basically moved to Washington State. I was a year behind, so I was a year older than all my classmates. So of all my friends who I eventually had, I was the first to get a driver's license. So everybody wanted me to drive them around everywhere because I was a year older than everybody else in my class. Um, but anyway, then we're getting far away from the boats. But that's it 
in the boats. Uh, Malta was, um, oh, basically, I had retired from video game development after almost 20 years uh, of success. Decided, okay, we were in our mid-40s. Jen crunched the numbers and said, yeah, we could probably take a stab at early retirement. I know you're very tired after 20 years of 60-hour weeks, uh, 52 weeks a year, um, give or take. You, you could probably take a break. You could probably try this whole thing. And so I did. And within, uh, and that's when I started doing Rotto Runs Through. Is kind of a, oh, well, this will be a kind of a fun hobby thing. But then I got a call from a uh, board or video game company that was starting up in Malta. And they said, well, hey, we'd want to hire you. And Jen, I said, whoa. We never. We had no idea. We had to look up Malta on the map. Yeah. We literally didn't know where it was. We found where it was. Like, oh my god! In the same way that England was our springboard to be able to explore Europe, Malta could be our springboard to explore Africa. Is what we thought because it's so close. It's within spitting distance of Africa. Yeah. And so we okay, let's do it. We flew down there. We saw them. We were excited about the project. And okay, I unretired and went back into the video game industry. I worked there for just less than a year, um, and was let go because of managerial differences. Let's say which is a whole nother story. Um, and then a year later, the company went out of business, but Jen and I found ourselves in Malta and we decided to stay because the cost of living was so low. Mm. Although we never really explored Africa because it turns out you can't get farther away from Africa anywhere in the world than being in Malta. <laughs> you have to fly back to Rome or Paris or somewhere else to get to Africa. Yeah, it was easier to get to anything in Africa from England than it ever was from Malta. So that didn't work out, but still we had a great time. That's it in a nutshell. Um, you got anything to add to that, honey, that I missed? Um, well, we had celebrated our 20th anniversary by doing a little, like a week on a catamaran around the, some Greek isles. Oh, more boating. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think that was the year before we, you got headhunted to go to Malta. But, oh, is that true? Yeah. So we oh. had really enjoyed ourselves on this little Greek trip. And, um, so when... In the Aegean Sea, yeah. Mediterranean. Okay. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's all it's all kind of connected. Um, anyway, and so when the call came for Malta, I was pretty excited because we really, really enjoyed mm. being in Greece. So yeah. that's I think that uh, we were like, yeah. Yep. <laughs> and you're going to pay us? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Great. And, and again, the project was really cool. I mean, I was still kind of burned out, but this was unlike anything I'd ever done before. And uh, yeah, so it was a big adventure. Okay, uh, then we have Jeff who says, uh, Richard and Jen, personal question. Generally, how do you feel when you're approached by fans? And this is true for you too, Honey Pie. Um, this happens at conventions all the time. Are there any behaviors that fans should avoid when approaching you two? For example, would it be all right to ask for a photo, an autograph, etc.? Mm. I'm just looking up where the Aegean Sea starts and stops. Yeah. Sorry. Okay, well, I'll answer. I mean, just... Be nice, I suppose. Don't be a jerk. But I don't think I've ever had a jerk fan approach me. And no, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm always happy to take a photo for somebody. Or I, don't, I think I, yeah, I have signed a couple of autographs over the years, and that's always just really weird. But I don't mind doing <laughs> it if, if it makes if it makes you happy. It can't be that bad. And I want to make people happy. That's a big part of my ethos has always been in all of my professional careers. I, the thing I've always appreciated most about what I do is that it makes people happy, uh, and that I get paid to do it. And I'm the luckiest sob ever to be in that situation. So, yeah. Uh, I, get, I guess one thing... That obviously, if I'm in conversation with somebody else, I, I don't think I've ever had anybody burst in and get, you know, get out of the way. I want to talk to Rado now. But you, I have been in situations where people, almost like a little line appears, and that's just kind of weird. <laughs> and it's understandable. I mean, it's really the most polite thing you can do because you figure... 
this might be your one chance to say hi and fist bump and all of that. But, you know, it, it's just, I, as soon as I see that happening, I basically, that's my cue to, okay, wrap it up with whoever I'm talking to and talk to the next person. And so I even that's fine. Um, yeah, I mean, just yeah. be polite. Just treat others as you would have them treat you. And, and, you'll, and you'll be fine. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Honey Pie? I think um, I always try and open it up if there's more than one person that wants to talk. Mm. I try and change my body position so that I can encompass, if there's three or four people just kind of standing around waiting, I try and bring everybody into the same conversation. Jen is a better social animal than me, definitely. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a little bit rude to take your attention off the one person that you're speaking with to mm -hmm. include everybody else. Mm -hmm. But I think oftentimes a group interaction is much more interesting anyway for everybody. Yeah. So, um, that would just be the one thing I, I try to do is include more people. Um, yep. Okay. But yeah, we've taken a bazillion pictures with people. It doesn't bother us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Generally, this is just more of a broad thing. How do you feel when you're approached by fans? I mean, it, 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 we went into the other questions of, well, what oh. fan um, protocol <laughs> would you like us to follow? Oh. But what are your thoughts about when somebody comes up and says, oh, my gosh, oh. I love your work so much, and I'm seeing it here in the real life for the first time? Oh. Be, you know, I'm totally charmed, of mm -hmm. course. I mean, who doesn't love that? I think that's just wonderful. Okay. Yeah. All righty. Well, there you go. Next personal question for Jen specifically. Ooh. My wife and I are looking to adopt a dog together for the next few years once we move into a bigger place. I grew up raising dogs. My wife's never had the experience. She really wants to share that experience with me, and I'm wondering what type of dog, breed, age, etc., you would personally recommend for a beginner. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Do you feel comfortable answering that question? Well, all I can say is we started off with a Lhasa Opso mutt. Mm -hmm. um, I'd had animals growing up, though, so I guess that's Was she a mutt? A... Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. She, Her yeah, mom she was, was a Lhasa Opso. Was, was and... she Lhasa Shih Tzu? Or no, she was lost and we don't know what the other was. Terrier, they Yeah, thought. some kind of terrier, yeah. But, um, yeah, so I think, gosh, what type of dog breed? Well, you know, an older dog is, is going to be trained, probably. The, and, at least the basics of yeah. you know, not peeing all over the place, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just having a house-trained animal is a wonderful beginning. Yeah, starting with a puppy is just so it's, hard. Oh, my gosh, it's so much work. It's you don't so think, overwhelming. And they're up at all hours and they're making noises and, you know, it's like a baby. Yeah. Um, so I think I might start with a, a dog that's maybe six, five, six, seven years old, somewhere in there, because okay. you'll still have a lot of great years with them. And if you're rescuing, they, you know, they just are so appreciative, yeah. these dogs. And, you know, not only are you saving that dog, but you're making room for another dog to be Who saved needs help. Yeah. in that shelter. So um, I think that that would be great. I think, you yeah, know. Good answer. Breed, it, I think it's going to depend a lot on what you want. We we like low-energy dogs, mm -hmm. um, quiet, low-energy dogs. We are low-energy people. Yeah. So for me, that's really important. And I don't want I, – I also want a submissive dog. Mm -hmm. So um, those are things that, that really matter to me, but I don't know what matters to you. I think you. I think when you meet Aren't your dog, beagles generally pretty not submissive. Aren't they pretty much known as a breed trait for their independence? Yeah. So we keep getting beagles. I know, but there, in every litter, there will be ones that are more submissive than others. That's true, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, I mean, we've only had one actual a, beagle puppy. That's less of a breed trait and more of a individual trait. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In gen I mean, Dobby was so weird because she was raised by our first dog, the Lhasa Opso. And Lhasa Opsos are palace guard dogs, so they just want to be with their people. So we had this beagle puppy raised by a palace guard dog, and all Scuttle wanted to do is be near me and chase a ball. Mm -hmm. So Dobby inherited those things, and she was awesome. Best dog ever. Yeah. Um, and then we've, we've adopted two adult beagles and a schmeagle yeah. since then. A beagle terrier mix. Yeah. 
So um, I think I think yeah, you spend some time with dogs. I'm and I think that the rescue places have gotten really good about looking at personalities yeah. of the dogs, what this dog needs, yeah. what it likes. So when you talk to the rescue personnel. They will, you can say, you know, I want a low energy dog or I want a high energy dog. I want one that will go on runs with me or I want one that just wants to cuddle. I want, I need a really cuddly dog, uh, whatever your particulars are. And I think that they will be able to match you with, um, you know, A, B or C dog. And then you go meet A, B and C and you figure out which one, you know, gels best with you and your family. Yeah. That's a fantastic answer, Honey Pie. Oh, thanks. All righty, let's move on. Let's continue the trend. Joe says, I was listening to a podcast on crafting items Ooh. for gaming. Oh. They mentioned GoImagine.com was better for oh. the maker and that they also give back to charities. Oh. Has Jen looked into this for her glass sales? What is her opinion on the site, if so? I have not, but we will be looking into it. GoImagine.com. Okay, yeah. All right, Joe, you'll have to write back again in a few uh, months. I mean, here's one thing I, I you know, my... I fully expect you to say, yeah, I looked at it and it, it's great. But at the end of the day, if I tried to sell all my stuff there, I would go out of business very quickly because Etsy is where it's at. Etsy is where the people are, right? Yeah, they are. Um, I'm just Googling this right now. Well, maybe we'll circle back around to this in a bit. Yep. Okay. Well, I've got it now in my browser history. So. All right. So yeah, ask us again in a few months, Joe, and we'll, we'll, we'll have uh, an I answer. I gotta tell you, I've been doing really good business on private Facebook group shows. That's true. Yes. I, I've, I have been neglecting my Etsy site for what, a year now, probably? Mm. Yep. I'm really, really bad. But, um, you know, I can sell so much during a Facebook show and interact with people at the same time, mm -hmm. which... You know, you kind of interact with people on Etsy if you send a message here or there, back and forth, but it's not the same as real-time chatting. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think that's another reason I've been really enjoying the Facebook shows. Ah, okay. Um, Michael says, Did you know there's an NPC quest giver in the latest Legend of Zelda title, Tears of the Kingdom, named Rado? <gasps> yes, I did. Uh -huh. <gasps> Michael continues, I am unfamiliar with anyone else using this handle. Did your days at Nintendo cast <laughs> such a shadow they are honoring you with this? Maybe a friend who uh, tucked you in. Maybe just a coincidence. I got to assume, Michael, it's a coincidence. I... No, there must be. You no, must have it a can't fan be. Well, first of all, I didn't go by Rado when I was at Nintendo. I know. Nintendo I'm saying that you must ago. have just a regular fan that now works at it Nintendo. It could be. I mean, but this is a Japanese developed game, and I wouldn't be surprised at all if the. Um, what do you call them? Uh, the, the sounds. The, the, the phonemes, the phenomes of Rado, maybe that rhymes with something in Japanese that has some kind of meaning like quest giver or something like that. I, I expect it's something like that. Um, or it's just some random stuff and you know the, the entire development team on Legend of Zelda at Nintendo HQ and Miyazaki himself, not Miyazaki, Miyamoto himself, uh, has no idea who I am. Uh, it's just, oh yeah, when somebody told me about that and sent me a screenshot, because they were they just almost dropped their controller and they were walking along and ran into this guy named Rado, <laughs> who then just kept pestering him, hey, could you go do this? Could you do that? Could you do the other thing? Um, I thought, and, I, yeah, and I, I didn't believe them at first. And I did a search for Legend of Zelda Rado, and this was right when it came out. So there were no videos or anybody talking about it. And I was like... This, this is a really weird spam mail that I'm getting here. And I think he actually sent me a picture to prove it, if I recall correctly. But yeah, it's, it's crazy. Uh, anyway, 
Uh, then he has a link to uh, the quest. It's a very boring endurance quest to outlast Rado in heat and cold weather, but Rado is such a colorful NPC, it's fun to listen to him throughout the quest. Is Be he really well. loud? Uh, if I recall correctly, it's a thing where, I mean, he challenges you to a bunch of stuff, right? But one of them is where he says, okay, who can stand the longest on one foot in the in the baking sun in the freezing night? And and, and, and he just keeps talking while you keep doing it, and you try to outlast him in endurance. I mean, so it's just, and he sends you on little mini quests and stuff like that. It's just weird. Total, it has to be a coincidence, Michael. Nobody from Nintendo has, I, I haven't talked to anybody from Nintendo in years. And when I was in Nintendo, I was just in Nintendo America as a gameplay counselor. And I mean, maybe some of the people who worked for Nintendo Power Magazine and maybe remember, but no, it's just impossible. There's just no way. As Jen says, maybe there's somebody on the team who is a fan of board games and therefore knows my show and thought, oh, that'll be funny. It's possible. Anything's possible. But it certainly would be for my time at Nintendo. No, I wouldn't no, think so. not at all. Yeah. Anyway, though. Uh, Nick says, I'm wondering about your overhead camera setup. Right now, I have a Logitech C922 1080p camera. Oh. I want to start changing focus like you do. Zooming in on certain parts of the board is player board. Do you use a single 4K camera and punch into a portion of the frame in OBS, keeping the 1080 resolution while doing so? Or do you use something like OBS Bot that physically tilts and pans the camera? I do the former. Um, basically, I just have a bunch of scenes set up in OBS, and what I'm doing, I have a, uh, I, I have the, the one step up from your camera. I have a Logitech Brio, which is the 4K version of the C922 that you have, effectively. And, um, I mean, heck, if I bring it over here a little bit, maybe you can see it on camera a little bit. There it is. There's my little buddy right there. Um, and basically, I just set up a bunch of scenes. I'm recording 1080, I mean, the OBS is taking in the 4K, you know, whatever is the 3180 by whatever, I forget that, 2610, whatever, resolution. But OBS is outputting 1080p because, honestly, 4K video is just pointless. I know some people have really big screen TVs, and I guess under those circumstances it makes sense. But uh, for the most part, it's just the vast majority of people are watching YouTube videos on their phones. So, you know, the extra bandwidth to upload 4K videos that um, slows down laptops like mine that can't play it smooth, it's just a waste of time. So I always upload 1080 I output from OBS 1080p, I'm bringing in 4K so that when I zoom in, I still keep some crispness uh, because I'm not really doing any kind of optical zoom. It's basically just digital zooming. And it works fine. And it's honestly, it kind of drives me nuts that I don't have the same quality video of like Paul Grogan or somebody who actually spent the time and effort to buy really expensive cameras and set up something much more elaborate. But the reality is, I mean, this Brio cost me like 150 bucks. And it, and it works well enough. Nobody has ever, ever complained um, that sometimes when I zoom in, it's a little soft. I think the audience is pretty forgiving of that, quite frankly. As it's more about the content than the... If, if you cross a certain good enough threshold with the looks, you'll get by. And I have done so. I do it with a lot of tricks. I offset the maybe kind of softness. I artificially crank up the sharpness a little bit, which does create a little bit of noise. But YouTube's... Uh, you know, codecs seem to take care of that pretty well. I also pump up my contrast and bump up my saturation just a tiny bit so the video really has punch. He's pumping and bumping. I punch and bump and bump uh, <laughs> just to get a... A, a, a more vibrant image than what um, is what I actually see in real life because that offsets the fact that I'm not using a really, really super duper high res, you know, high pixel uh, bitrate camera. Um, and it works well for me, and it should work well for you. I actually did have a Logitech. I think I had the C920, not the 22. And I thought it worked well, but it wasn't good enough, which is why I jumped up to the Brio, and I've been happy with it. 
But I, I, a C922, I think, would work fine if you're playing relatively small games and then zooming in from there. But if you have to have, like, I mean, you know, this thing is, what, uh, was that, about two feet away from the board on most games? And I think the C922 wouldn't do a good enough job. So, but the, the Brio, and there's, I mean, I, I say the Brio, I got this thing like three or four years ago. Now, you can't throw a stick without hitting, you know, 20 different 4K webcams that are all vying for the dollar. I'm not saying the Brio is the best. It's just the one I got, and it works good for me. Works well for me. Um, let's see. I was thinking about streaming Mr. President from GMT Games. Crazy, I know. Haha. <laughs> With all the tracks on that huge board, I want an easy way to jump and table and focus. Yeah. Uh, you're, I don't think your C922 would be able to do it. Um, and you'd be better off. I mean, heck, here's the other thing you can do, though. Just get another cheap webcam, right? Uh, and make and you know and and like a, a decent you know uh, you know good throughput uh, USB splitter and plug. I mean, I have three USB cameras plugged in to my computer: the overhead camera, the green screen camera, and my face camera because they're all going all the time. So you can plug in multiple webcams, you know, if you have multiple jacks on your computer or through a USB splitter. And so just set up a second camera, um, even with like a cheap $50 or $60 webcam that's just really close to whatever it is you want to zoom in on and just jump between scenes showing those different cameras. Uh, that would work well too. Um, you know, honestly, that I probably should have done that, but I, I found this system that works well for me. Okay, and honey, this is it, the last one, uh, because we have no dogs this month, I warn you, and no spoilers, and you still need your uh, words of wisdom, but Simon says, I know you've talked about your musical taste before, but I wonder if you or Jen have ever heard or seen Hi Ren. Hmm. Any chance you do a React video, smiley face. I am not going to do a React video, but it is funny, actually, Simon, you should ask that, because I am well aware of Hi Ren and the uh, the you know the musical artist rapper Ren because Paulo, the guy who does goof checks on my channel, a couple of months ago he said, "Hey, have you seen Hi Ren?" And I said, "No, I don't. If you're from I've never heard of it." And he said, "This is going to sound weird, but you, could you film yourself watching this video for the first time and send it to me?" And I did, and because uh, I didn't know at the time, uh, so this song Hi Ren is probably the biggest breakthrough, most sensational song of like, like a generation, maybe. Oh. If not a generation, certainly of like the last few years. Uh, and it was so popular a few months ago that, I mean, there was like a cottage injury of, on YouTube of people just recording themselves watching it for the first time. Philosophers watching it for the first time. Rappers watching it for the first time. Grandmas watching it for the first time. And then, you know, and these videos would get hundreds of thousands of views because everybody's like wanting to experience somebody seeing High Ren for the first time. Oh. Now, you have no idea what I'm even talking about, right? I have right? no idea. I've watched High Ren. I've watched that video at least a dozen times now. I mean, I think it's incredibly high art. So do you want to see it? I don't want to be filmed watching it. You do not want to film a React video of it? No, thank okay, you. Okay, then here's what we're going to do, Simon. We are going to pause for a second. Jen's going to watch it. It's a 10-minute music video. Okay. And we'll hear what Jen thinks. But no React videos today. Sorry. Hold on. Okay, we literally just finished watching it now. Um, honey, what are your thoughts? <sighs> wow, what a wise young man. Oh, my gosh. I think he's gone through the fire and come out the other side. Uh, it's so inspiring, and I just think he's incredible. Okay. Well, there you go. Uh, thanks, Simon. Before, only Paulo got to see me weep like a baby over that one, but now everybody gets to see it. Anyway, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's incredible. 
and inspirational. Uh, and uh, I've been at a loss for words. And so, yeah, I became a fan overnight. And uh, his more recent diss track I really loved, too. Then uh, the fun of my message a bit. But anyway, uh, I think that was it. Honey Pie, so do you have any closing words of wisdom? <laughs> or do you want to take a break after I think that? maybe I could not possibly touch any of that. Okay. Well then, folks, I think we are done with yet another episode of the Rado Talks to podcast. But as always, folks, please hit your questions at questions.rado.com, and we will be back next month. Uh, and uh, hopefully I will not be openly blubbering on camera with my nose running. Uh, have a very, very nice day, everybody. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye.